Hey there, what's up everybody? Long, long time no talk. So, apologize for the break between our last podcasts. We've all been traveling a ton and Thanksgiving snuck up on us. Um, but but we got a good one today. So, I'm going to hit a, on a, a couple topics. We're going to talk about BFR and not just uh, applying it for exercise or just applying it passively for a cell swelling type response, but BFR and, and what we currently know with electrical stimulation. And then our interview today is going to be with Dr. Stephen Patterson, who's a good friend of mine, and we've done a lot of work together. And he's one of the, the leading BFR researchers in, in, the, in the world. Um, he's over in Europe. And uh, we're going to talk about his old research, his new research, his ongoing research, and, and also deep dive into things like ischemic preconditioning, um, which he's also one of the, the experts on, on that, and then talk about everything from performance to angiogenic responses with it. So, again, I hope it's a good one for everyone. I think it is. And uh, let's get to it. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist. Johnny Owens. All right. What's up? What's up? Welcome back, everybody. It's been a while. It's been a while since our last podcast, man. Weeks, weeks. And I, I didn't realize how much time these things would take. Part of our problem is we talk for like way too long hours. You know, I was I was first thing we do this would be like 30, 45 minute podcast. Like 30 to 45 minutes is just my intro. And that's a West Texas talk too much problem. But um, anyways, we've all been traveling way too much and the holiday kicked in, but but we're back. And so I think we got a, a lot of cool stuff to talk about today. And so we, we've got the same group of knuckleheads back with us today. We, we're all back in our homes for a, for a brief sec. I'm, I'm running straight to the airport from here. But um, got Ben Weatherford here in, in beautiful SA, Texas. Kyle, the beard, Kimbrel out in in no more fires, California. And Zach, I'm trying to grow a beard. I'm going to hit puberty soon. Dunkel out in Georgia. So what's, what's up fellas? How's it going? What's happening? Good. good. Hey, yo. Bright, bright and early. So where we all been, man, it's been a long time. Everyone's been, been out and about Ben, you, you win the best travel story so far and, and coolest story. So you just got back a couple of days ago. Where, where you been brother? I just got back from China, so I went to uh, the rowing facility, Olympic Training Center, outside of Hangzhou in China. So had a flight from here to L.A., a long layover, and then L.A. to Beijing, another layover, and then a canceled flight, and then rescheduled flight to Hangzhou, and then a two-and-a-half to three-hour drive to the training facility. So. <laughs> So I mean, it's a cool opportunity, man. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you got to do it. I'm sorry we put you through this, but um, no, no, man, it, it was cool. It was it was a great opportunity. It was cool to present. You know, I did a lab and a lecture, and you had like was, the whole Chinese, like the director of the Olympic Committee there, and all that yeah, kind of stuff. The president of the Olympic Committee, as well as a bunch of coaches and and some other folks in house. Um, and how was, had a how was the competition? How was the food? You know, um, it was not my choice of, of what I would have. Um, 
<laughs> so I, you I, I may I may have avoided the food and just ate the couple protein bars and, and some cashews and almonds that I brought with me and kind of fasted for a couple days. So Ben had one meal and it, it did him wrong. I don't think you know what you ate, right? It was. I, I, I'm still not sure. Yeah. yeah the, uh, so then what? So what? You had like three protein bars for three days is what you lived off of? Oh, uh, yeah. For, for two days. I had, had okay. you know, That's not like three, three protein bars and some some almonds and cashews. So it was enough yeah. to, to squeeze by. Yeah. Uh, you know, had a, a little ham and cheese croissant when I got back to the Beijing airport. And it was like the greatest thing I ever had because I hadn't had real food for a couple of days. Yeah. So the Chinese Olympic team's weird. They have a lot of Western talent over there that's coaching. And one of our, our buddies, Nathan, just went over there, which was weird, knowing that he just went. And then they and he had nothing to do with it. And they, they reached out to us like two weeks later after he got there. So Right. So at least you had Yeah, to. I mean, it was, it was almost the same time as when he got there. You know, yeah. It was like maybe a week after. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how he lasts for a year. A uh, good old boy from Arkansas. <laughs> yeah. They, they do have, they do bring in a lot of outside folks though. So it's, it's cool. They've got this, this kind of melting pot of, of people in there for both sports medicine and performance um, oh. and, and some, some really cool facilities. It's, it's weird fellas. Like a day after Ben was there, maybe two days, I've already got three emails, I think like from China from different groups like, Hey, we heard Ben Weatherford is here and want to reach out. And I mean, it's, it's crazy. So they must've been monitoring or something. I don't know how they knew it. Um, but, but anyways, I, I told a couple of them that, that you're good to go. You're going to go back because you're not traveling anymore. The best <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the best part of the group that about Ben's lost in China Yeah, and you know, just joking, but that was really like the day before I actually kind of got lost in China for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. So they dropped him off at the wrong hotel. Um, going back and no one speaks English there. So Ben really almost didn't make it back. I think that was their trick that, you know, they try and hire people. So that, that was their trick. Well, good, man. And you're done for the rest of the year, right? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm done with work travel. Of course, you know, my, my wife has me traveling this coming weekend for one of her events, but it's just over to Houston. So okay, uh, pretty, pretty easy trip, all things considered. Cool. Well, and then the counterpoint here. So as soon as this podcast is over, I'm running the airport because I'm a patriot, Ben. And so I'm, I'm going to work with the U.S. Olympic team out in San Diego. Um, God bless America. I, I'm, not, I'm not a commie. And, and so, I'm, you know, I'm going to well, do it. I, I, was, I was wearing my American flag socks when I presented. So I, I, I kind of snuck that in there for good measure. All right. All right. Well, good. So, so okay. So, yeah. So I'm off to go work with U.S. track and field out in Chula Vista. We've already worked with the, with the guys, know them super well, out in the springs and also snow and ski um, out in Utah. So um, good, good friends of ours and working with them. And, and then we're being doing Lake Placid, it sounds like, early next year. And then I guess cool stuff. I just got back from TCC in Vegas, which if anyone knows me at conferences, it's mostly when there are places like that. I'm not at the conference very much. And so – um, wasn't, wasn't there a whole lot. I saw a lot of casino time though. And, a, and, a, and a lot of, a lot of bourbon and, um, but got to hang out with our, our friends that we work with a bunch, um, Cirque du Soleil. Um, and thanks Kate for the hookup with that. That was super cool. And I guess just to throw it out there, we haven't talked, um, two weeks ago, I was out in Minnesota in Minneapolis with Dan Buss's group and Alina, and we are kicking off, man. It's going to happen. Um, the rotator cuff trial is, is, is moving forward. Funding's in place. Thanks a lot to Dr. Buss. And um, hopefully we get some cool answers with some stuff happening in the shoulder with healing and things like that. 
Tristan Mars from Ashish Betty's lab is, is also involved with that. So um, that's me and I'm done. I'm shutting it down. Kyle, what, what's up with you, man? Well, we've, let's see, I had a big course out here in Camarillo. Um, very first, kind of the first part of November, we had about 30 folks that braved the, the fires uh, that was this crazy. way. And, and, so yeah, it was, it was, the Astros, he texts me like, hey, I heard the course is full. Can I squeeze in a new guy we got? I said, yeah, go for it, man. He's like, okay, he texts me back, booked it. We're good to go. And then I swear, like a minute later, you text me a picture of it looks like freaking hell just opened up like two blocks from your clinic just yeah. fire everywhere and i text everybody i'm like did you already book that ticket man i'm not sure if this is a good idea it was yeah. crazy that, that i actually i packed a bag for the first time uh had my I, I was texting people i said well look at your pictures didn't make the cut but my my granddad's shotgun and, and my uh, my other granddad's hunting rifle and these things made it but your picture didn't make the cut yeah. i guess you figure out you know what's important what's to you important, so i was like man. my dog my yeah. your, your <laughs> beer ridiculous. what about your your brisket your cooker man your smoker did you try and man you know i figure i can buy a new one because who doesn't need a new smoker <laughs> yeah, that's true that's true yeah all right well i'm yeah, glad so. man I'm, I'm glad i haven't in, in, in all know. seriousness man that was terrible and i'm glad you're safe feel bad for everyone out there it's you know yeah. trump, trump says you guys just gotta appreciate like, it we actually had uh, one lead, of the, right uh, i know <laughs> yeah yeah I, I mean i think you know it's funny he made that with the comment about you know forest deforestation or some kind of something there's a fair amount of truth to what he said actually yeah i know he I never know. said he never says any things in a way that yeah well <laughs> rubs we, won't, people we, we, we won't go there <laughs> yeah exactly all right so that was a great but course packed oh, that was a good course yeah. we had like that was good 30 a little over 30 people in, in our clinic here in Camarillo. Um, a lot of fun. A few of us went next door to the brewery, got some beers after, which is always a good time. And then uh, <clears throat> was with the Colorado Rockies last week and on Thursday. Um, out Arizona in Arizona or Florida? Phoenix. Okay. In, in Phoenix, yeah. They. It's funny. Their spring training facility is on an Indian reservation, oh. um, which I ha- it's in the middle of – it's in Scottsdale. I had no clue. Huh. Um, so there's, there's apparently a few different rules that are just kind of obscure, but because uh, I was kind of asking little details, but didn't get a whole lot. So that was a lot of fun. They have a huge, they have the largest spring training facility. It's combined with um, the Arizona Diamondbacks. Oh, okay. Their facility is very, very large. Yeah. And um, then on Sunday, did a kind of a semi-private slash public course here in in LA at a place called the performance cares and sports medicine specialists or some, it was kind of a longer name, but um, they, they put together a nice little crew just on a very short notice. Nice. Um, and I uh, had a few of the Kaiser sports fellows in there and another guy in the sport, the spine fellowship with Kaiser. And, yeah. So really, really been a fun course. I was kind of, I was exhausted because with um, all the fires and then the course and then Phoenix and, um, but it, it was fun cause that course really kind of energized me a little bit. So, and then, and then Saturday I've got, uh, UCLA athletics out here. So, ah, uh, yeah. Good. And I'm done with, with Jeremy, our friend, Jeremy Vell and his crew. Jeremy, Yeah. Finally getting, finally getting those guys going. They got about we, 16 we, people, I think in that class. Cool. Cool. We toured that facility, their new one. It's beautiful. Yeah. Awesome. It's awesome. It's so, it's so, so cow, man. I mean, it's like, the I'm going to try areas like all open and you look out to yeah. the city. It's all on a roof. It's crazy. Yeah, you're gonna yeah, try that. 
I feel so bad for you being exhausted, Kyle. Your your travel must be very strenuous on you. <laughs> yeah, well, Ben, you know, I'm actually in clinic treating patients 40 hours a week, so there's something to that, you know? <laughs> Again, I, I feel so sorry for you, I mean, Kyle. If I was just hopping, plane hopping, yeah. and drinking, you know, in the business class, it'd be no big deal. Or living, <laughs> off, living off two power bars and yeah, you know, getting your phone hacked and all that. <laughs> Cool, man. That's a good, that's a nice finish. Say hi to Jeremy and those guys at UCLA for me. I will, I will do it. I look forward to that course. It should be fun. Dunkle, what's up, man? How's it going? Good. So what's your yeah. life been? So what, the beginning of November, was that up uh, in New York City for a private or a public course up there? Yeah. And then um, just last weekend had uh, was up at Penn State to do a, a talk on hypertrophy and kind of some of the different ways we think about what actually contributes to muscle mass incorpor- incorporating BFR with that. So met with pretty much groups of researchers all throughout the day, um, started at eight in the morning, didn't end till nine at night. Um, and I did another presentation for their athletic training students up there. So all in all, pretty good day. Nice. And then, um, headed to Iowa, um, Friday night and yeah. then do a, do a course up there. So should be, should be pretty good. Nice, nice. Is it, so was that Penn State one um, run by the athletic department or is that a regular thing they do? No. So what they do is um, the, the graduate students, they have a colloquium. And uh, from there, they uh, the guy, uh, John Miller, who was at the private course uh, I did up there in June, uh, invited me back up there to do a talk on basically some of the science of BFR and, you know, kind of how maybe they could use it with, with research and, you know, in different populations, met with a geriatric researcher, some vascular researchers. Uh, they have a, a study um, getting ready to kick off with ACL reconstructions, looking at mitochondria mm. in, in quad and hamstring. So, and they linked up with uh, Brian Irving down at LSU for that as well. Oh, nice. And then, um, yeah, so that that's who that was with, but it was with the, the kinesiology department. Cool. Yeah, and Brian's a good friend of ours. I saw Kyle um, typing in colloquium to try and figure out what that word means, um, as, you, as you said it. Um, that's correct. That's correct, yes. That's cool, yeah. And, and Brian, we do a lot of work with him. He's a great friend. And if you want to know anything about mitochondria, he's the man. And, and so Steve and I talked about that, and, and I think you know we'll talk about this in later podcasts, this whole lack of endurance, um, loss of vascular beds, potentially mitochondria after ACL. Um, it's pretty fascinating. You know, it's everyone thinks muscle and, and there's actually this angiogenic effect. It, it looks like it really is responsible for the loss of muscle that first four weeks as well, not just a down regulation of protein synthesis. So that might also explain, you know, Chris and Brian stuff with the lack of satellite cells. If you see capillary beds are, are starting to fade out, where do those satellite cells go or the muscle stem cells as well? So cool stuff. Awesome, man. That was well, kind of Johnny. That was kind of what that Franz IPC paper was looking at, right? It's just the ability to maintain blood flow um, in that post, that early post-op phase. Yeah, Franz's IPC as well as the Kaysen's work. Um, so yeah, over, over there in Slovenia is is kind of what you know. They're, they're the first ones that kind of started identifying that post ACL. Um, it's been looked at in other yeah. other conditions, but post ACL they looked at strength in one one scenario and then. Blood flow in the other. Yep. I yep. And so yep. BFR significantly changed it. If you prehab just for eight days prior to ACL at, at that four week time point. Um, so if you can slow atrophy by keeping the vascular beds around pre ACL, 
Um, it looks like you can preserve some quad and some strength, and they also showed it preserved blood flow at the four-week time point. 12-week, they were the same, um, but but you never know. Does that mean, you know, you know, what's the problem with that is they did just eight days, five sessions pre-ACL, and then they didn't do anything post-ACL. So maybe if we did a post, we would also see changes at that 12-week time point, so, which most of us that, that atrophy, That atrophy happens pretty early. Yep. Anyway, right. So if yeah. we keep that around early on, then right, right. That's the thing. It's the acuity, and 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 so you know we're we're kind of going off track here. But a lot of people who might be nervous with, well, I don't want to do it post surgery because my docs are nervous or whatever. I mean, we've we've discussed this over and over. Um, we we don't think there's a concern, but pre, if you say, okay, can we get them for a week pre? Um, you're at least probably doing something, and then once they feel comfortable, maybe at the four week time point maybe you've preserved enough that you can jump into it from time point four to 12, you know, over time it's going to shift. I'm, I'm sure. Um, as we learn more and more to the acute stages, Steve and I even talked about, you know, it, does his angiogenic response move into the joint, um, not just muscle. And so, you know, if anyone's concerned, well, there's compromised healing because of these short acute bouts of ischemia for the graft, which, which, you know, we kind of think is absurd, but if we show there's an angiogenic effect, that's not only in the muscle, but in the joint as well, that, that might be something that, that promotes graft healing. And, and so the only way we're probably going to know that is an animal model. And potentially now with the air force, we've got the ability to start looking at that in the pig, um, which is pretty cool. So, so we'll see. How, how do we get off into that topic, man? That, that's like a whole nother podcast. So, yeah, sorry, it got me. It got my wheels turning. Damn you, Kyle Kimbrell. Hey, and you guys know what? We're out. We're out here on the left coast. We're not bound by any rules and regulations. Y'all are bound by in Texas. Trust us. We know, man. We know. Um, <laughs> you guys notice we have a, we have a clean rating for this podcast, which is what? It's amazing. Yeah, and you don't know how hard I tried. I I told my wife and Tori before we started this that I'm going to try not to cuss ever on this podcast. And I think the worst word I've said is hell so far. And if anyone knows me, that is very, very hard. Um, I, I, I tell you a story. Yeah, I know. We, we had tons of videos of the, of the soldiers when I was trying to document what we were doing, which is probably totally illegal during the, during the wars. And when I'd speak at conferences, you couldn't put the volume on in the videos because I dropped F-bombs. I didn't even know it like every, every other sentence. So anyways, we're clean. So your kids can listen to this podcast, which is awesome. Because that's our goal is to get kids to start listening to this because – that, that's where that's where the social media people are, right? All right. So today, though, what we're going to do, I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing Stephen Patterson, um, good friend of ours. We do a lot of research with him. He's on our Science and Research Advisory Board, um, and, and he's kind of been a BFR research leader for a while, along with some other folks we work with. And one of the things that we discuss or will discuss is um, probably – electrical stimulation with blood flow restriction. And, and we're working on a, a book chapter right now for Noyes, the new sports medicine uh, book that's coming out in applications of BFR post-surgery. And, and, a, and a portion of that post-op, we're, we're really going into to East End with BFR. And so that's a question people get, you know, can you combine this with electrical stimulation? And, and yes, for sure you can. And so I guess our, our job today is to, to go in and, and discuss at least what studies we have so far and, and mechanistically what we think is going on. So I guess you guys take away like what you think this continuum is of like passive BFR or IPC. And then, you know, there's exercise with BFR, there's endurance with BFR. 
STEM kind of lives in this middle ground. So what are y'all's thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I was going to say, so typically when I use the STEM, I use it with um, like the IPC and then I'll cycle that. So on the new unit, I just set the customize an IPC setting um, based off the Netsume study. Okay. Of five minutes, we do five minutes of ischemia um, and I cycle Russian um, throughout the duration of the treatment. So it's five minutes of ischemia, one minute reperfusion. And then I cycle that it's, it's a total of four cycles. So you're looking at right around, um, 23 minutes of actual treatment time with the, with the stem. Um, and, uh, so, and then once, once I kind of, once we're able to move into resistance exercise, um, or more resistance exercise in a weight-bearing state, I kind of move away from using the stem at that point. But I like to use it early on just specifically to kind of with activation. And then, you know, we have some of the – where we believe the effects are with the increase in muscle protein synthesis. So Right. Right. And so pad placement, do you make sure the pads are distal to the cuff? Do you ever cover it with the cuff? No, I do distal. So I'll do the VMO and then um, – you know, I try to get uh, either mid VL or you know the distal aspect of the VL. I don't I don't compress through the electrode. Yeah, which I've never had. But when I was I was with the Cavaliers and we were messing around with it on some guys, and they use a compact system. Have y'all have you ever seen that one? It has tons of electrodes. It's got them all over the place, kind of like these. That's actually, that's actually what they used in that Natsume study yeah. in 2014. They used the compacts. So we couldn't get the cuff without it being over the electrodes and, and had no issue at all. It didn't change anything. We, we tried it without the tourniquet and then with the tourniquet. Um, and so I think even having the tourniquet covering the electrode a little bit, it doesn't seem to really affect um, anything going on with it. So I don't think people need to freak out and stay completely away from it if possible. And, and so I guess let's, let's move in. And, and I, my point then is cell swelling is or passive BFR or ischemic preconditioning is just the application of a tourniquet with nothing else. And, and so the thoughts on that is, well, you're going to swell the muscle and you're going to get myocyte swelling and, and that might activate mTOR or MAPK and drive protein synthesis through stretching of the cellular walls. But there's no metabolite buildup. There's no lactate. Um, and, and so it's probably the lowest stimulus. If, if you can only do that, you're like trying to just slow the train, the atrophy train, and, 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 and you're not doing anything for hypertrophy, um, minimal for strength other than keeping muscle cross-sectional area. So what we say is most of our patients can do something. Um, and so those studies are done just to kind of prove a point. But it's rare other than, you know, like when we have our patellar tendon repairs and things like that, where we're just really not doing any quad that we're just putting it on without some sort of activation. So STEM is a way to probably get muscle activation at a very low level and kind of be this middle ground between actual doing nothing and no metabolites versus doing 20 to 30 percent, maybe one RM and getting the maximum kind of bang for your buck for it. And so I think it's an Atsume study or someone else who, who, you know, they kind of said this isn't like. 10% is a threshold that they're looking for with STEM. So you're kind of getting a 10% 1RM if you're seeing this kind of maximum muscle contraction with STEM. So it's a nice kind of middle ground. And I think if I'm a clinician doing this postoperatively, I would much rather have the tourniquet on with STEM than just the tourniquet on alone or the tourniquet on with isometrics to start with. So let's let's talk about that Natsume study because it, it was kind of one of, the, well, no, it wasn't the first one. It's, it's what, three years old now or something, but... Yeah. You guys got the breakdown of kind of what they did on that? 
It's been a while since I've read. Yeah. So what they did was they basically had eight, eight untrained individuals. They served as their own controls. So one leg had NMES alone. The other leg did a combo of NMES plus uh, cell swelling or plus the, the um, tourniquet. And then they trained for two weeks, five days a week. Mm-hmm. And um, then they did what they called a two-week detraining period. And um, and like I said before, the the stimulus was five minutes of inflation, one minute of reperfusion, cycled four times, and um, stim ran continuous throughout. And then um, the the kind of results that we see from that were um, after the two week uh, training period, no significant changes in cross site or muscle thickness in the NMES only leg, and there was about a four percent change out of the combo leg. And then they did lose 3% of that during the, uh, the two week detraining period. But I always tell people, I'm like, you know, I don't know how relevant, how clinically significant that is because we typically don't take a two week hiatus in between once we initiate care, specifically in a post-op period. Like once we initiate care, we're going. Yeah. Um, and so we, then we progress into resistance exercise. Um, and then, uh, like I said, they trained five days a week. They did do it twice a day. So there was a high, high frequency that they were doing it with strength was measured as well at 90 and 180 degrees per second. Um, that was retained following the two week detraining period at seven and 8%. Okay. Yeah. So only in the, uh, the combo, like no significant change in the leg that received NMES alone. Exactly. And their leg position, it was flexed, right? Did they talk about that? I thought they were at 60 degrees. I, yes, they were yeah. they at 60 degrees. Yeah. And I think in all the human NMES studies, it's all been with a flexed knee, um, which is probably the better way to go about yeah. it. Yeah. But if you're immediately post-op, um, you might have difficulty. I, I know um, Luke Hughes and I were talking about, he was, he was talking with Van Loon about doing a STEM clinical study. And that was the thing, you know, maybe it would be interesting to see if you're stuck in extension. Um, are we seeing the same thing without that actual muscle tension? And, and then the, the big question on all these studies like that is that like, that's great. If you work in a professional setting with, with an athlete, um, you know, the Olympic guys I'll be with or DOD where it's like, yeah, we, we can see them twice a day for two weeks. It's no big deal. But, but the real question then the next study needs to be, what about three times a week for, for just one, one round? Um, do, do we see changes there? Cause I guess Kyle, that's probably what you would be doing it mostly. Right. Yeah, that's correct. We don't, we're just not going to get every day yeah. in clinic. Is it something day. you do clinically? I love that combination in yeah. Oscar Stim and yeah. EFR. I, I wanted to ask Zach because I think he, I think Zach, you when you were talking about how you do it, you said using that IPC setting on the on the new unit. But are you setting that to full occlusion, or are you going eighty percent with that? No, I, I do full. Um, if you, it's it's okay. difficult from the Natsume study to because they did not do a percentage. Right. They based right. off thigh girth. And, uh, and they, they basically give you a breakdown on different thigh girths depending in, in, in the pressure they used. Um, and, and it puts you pretty darn close to, to full occlusion when mm. you look at um, the size of the cuff. And then if you just like I tested it on myself and it's, it's pretty, pretty close to full occlusion. I think, you know, for like the medium sized thigh or whatnot, I forget the exact girth measurements, but it was around like 160 and, and 160 for me is at full occlusion. So, yeah. 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 And, and like Jamie Burr's paper that just came out on IPC, 
and they did stem. I mean, they're doing 220 with a wide cuff. And we know they use Delphi stuff. And yeah. so that, that's got to be pretty close to full occlusion on people. And, and Johnny, that was the same. So he he did a variation of that Natsume study. He buried the the kind of ischemia reperfusion, almost very similar to an ischemic conditioning, four on, four off. Yeah. And it was at 220 as well. So, yeah, right. that's pretty much going to be full occlusion. And, and in the kind of review paper Jeremy Linick and I put out in, in CSMR, we, we discussed some, some studies that have looked at that as well. As the load goes down, it yep. seems like the pressure might need to go up. And so if we're saying that we're at like 5 to 10 percent of, of uh, MVC because of STEM, uh, you, you might need to really think about that pressure has probably got to start to come up. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so that food for thought there. And so, yeah, Natsumi study um, was kind of one that everyone hung their hat on that, that had really good results. Um, here recently, we've had quite a bit of animal models start to come out. And so people sometimes poo poo the animal studies, but I love them because they, they start to at least explain some things for us. And so there was one recently that, that looked at it from a protein synthetic standpoint in a, in a rat. And that was also by Natsume as well. Anyone know that one or want to discuss it? I, I'm going to keep it quiet today because uh, I'm, I'm kind of death warmed over from, from the travel. <laughs> well, and so what it was basically, and, and, and it's, a, it's, it's not a clinical rat model. So, so these aren't diseased by any, any state. But, but basically in rats, what they did is, is four sets of, of um, eight second on, four second off. Um, and, and basically it was, it was at a, at a five minute bout again. So that kind of five minutes that everyone uses in this. And, and so what they, what they found is stem in those rats increased time to fatigue faster. Um, it also increased the amount of the wet weight of the muscle. So the, the muscle actually had hypertrophy from, from being able to measure it out. And then to explain that out, they did measure mTOR and MAPK. And the NMES alone, they didn't get an increase in muscle protein synthetic rates. But with the, the tourniquet on, they, they did get a drive of muscle protein synthesis with STEM. So, it, you know, you got to ask yourself, why are we doing STEM? You know, they say for muscle activation, okay, okay whatever, that's great. But if it's I can put STEM on and I'm trying to drive mTOR, and drive muscle protein synthesis to slow atrophy, that, that's probably the biggest bang for your buck for it uh, acutely. And so at least in a rat model right now, um, which is better than a mouse model, it's not as good as a human model and not as good as a pig model, but that's the next step is can we look at uh, applications of STEM to be a protein synthesis driver acutely post-op? Because that, that's, again, we, we got to think differently of like, okay, our patients are losing muscle. There's, there's one thing I can do to start driving protein synthesis, and, and it might be this postoperatively. So I think, yeah, I think it's like, you know, what Kyle likes to say about creating a, a big enough stress since we're in an you know, evolutionary state of, of hunter-gatherer still, you know, is this our way to create a more significant muscular stress, especially for the quad, whenever the activation is just really not there voluntarily, you, you know, create this ischemic muscle contraction stress using E-STEM is our way to facilitate some some greater activity, and it's just a, enough to get us to that threshold of, okay, this is something we have to respond to. Right. No, I agree. I agree. Are you going to say something, Zach? Yeah, I was going to say, um, I think one of the one of the big kind of general take takeaways I get from the, the rat study from Natsume, the human study with Natsume, and then Jamie Burr's study, 
they they did the treatment all for right around 24 minutes. Um, so that rat study was the same protocol that that he that they used with the um, with humans. Five minutes of ischemia, one minute reperfusion, cycled four times, gets you roughly 23 minutes of treatment. Mm-hmm. And then Jamie Burr's paper was like I said, four on, four off, cycled three times. So right. it gets you in the the ballpark of that 24, 25 minutes potentially facilitating cell swelling and then the overall, um, I think, driver of hypoxia as well. Right, right. And and I guess, you know, taking this from a clinical standpoint, again, it's a billable. (laughs) You know, we don't have the code yet for BFR, but but you can code in an NMES while you're doing that as well. So that's an extra billable during that time. Cool. And and then I guess recently, and this is going to maybe lead into some of our research that we're hoping to get going over in Germany with, with Dominic's group over there, is, is a, a diabetic rat model. And that is, can you do a, a combo of STEM and BFR and basically help drive protein synthesis um, in, in this rat model? And so it was kind of interesting, this, this AGEs, these uh, advanced glycation end products, uh, from the hyperglycemia of diabetes, looks like it shuts mTOR down. So what they wanted to see in this study is could could the combination of BFR and STEM be better than just STEM alone um, of being able to drive AGEs down and then see a subsequent change in increasing protein synthesis? And and that's what they saw um, that BFR and STEM in a rat model did push down the 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 thing in diabetes that might be causing muscle wasting and if you knock that down then you might get this window to push protein synthesis up and so that that's this big question you know the the diabetes model that we really want to see from bfr is can we drive muscle and can we drive angiogenesis and and what we know is muscle doesn't come on without angiogenesis the the pathways work together and so it, it sounds like if you're not knocking AGE down um, in a diabetic model, you, you might not be able to drive the muscle side of it. So so that's that's great animal work that can hopefully translate into the diabetes studies that, that are probably about to happen early next year over in Germany. Um, it pilot work to start seeing, is it tolerable? Is the vascular, vascularity safe? And, and do we drive a muscle and angiogenic response? Because we get asked that a lot. Like, can you do this with a diabetic? Right now, it's it's listed as a, a no with with us just because we don't know. But I, I think there's a ton of potential for it. Any thoughts on on any of those guys or, or any of these other STEM studies? There's 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 quite a few out there. Some of them haven't had the same results. You know, Jamie and, and his postdoc slides. They they early on did the a BFR and STEM study, and and it didn't seem to make changes. I think compared to STEM alone, the one the one study he did uh, actually had pretty significant differences. It was again uh, subject service or own control to different capacities. So one leg was uh, a control that didn't do anything. Then he did enemy at the loan. Then he did cell swelling alone, and then he did finally did a combo. And they trained um, four times a week for six weeks. And um, at, at the conclusion of the six weeks, only the combo leg demonstrated a significant increase in um, leg strength. And it was actually at 32 kilograms. And so the uh, the cell swelling alone increased leg strength over six weeks. I think it was uh, 16 kilograms. And then um, the NMES alone leg was at uh, 
14 kilograms. It was two kilograms off between NMES alone and cell swelling alone, but those were not different than the control. The only difference came um, with NMES, the uh, right, 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 right. It was, it was CSA that didn't change, right? So correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's what, right. Yeah. So, so strength did change, but CSA didn't change. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a pretty nice change though. Over six weeks to get, yeah. you know, o- over 66 uh, pounds on, on, on leg strength. Yeah. 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 So really there's one study so far that, that didn't show changes with cell swelling. Um, the Iverson study post-op ACL doing it. And, and other studies have shown changes, Takarada's, the, the Kubota's healthy models. And so, so far, it, it still looks like there's definitely something there and a play to it. And I will throw out there on the Iverson study, I, I think there's some technical flaws with it. Um, you know, this whole thing, when you when you start reading of, of how they did it and, and what they use, they used a dual-part Delphi cuff which is a surgical dual-port dual cuff that's supposed to be hooked up to a, a, a microprocessor with two lines running to it. They used a dual-port and then just hooked up one port of a pump-up blood pressure cuff to it. Um, and and uh, I asked the Delphi engineers about it, and they, they just like shook their head, you know, whatever. They just makeshift something. They're not sure how that would hold pressure or hold anything. That, that's the problem um, with, with some of these things, you know. They say, and they've got it in their title, it does not attenuate uh, muscle loss. And it's like, well— you probably got drift, man. You pump this thing up. And, and we know these pump up things, they're on a pressure gauge. So any anytime you just see someone using a, a little pump up thing, it pumps up and it goes and then it drifts and it starts to drop down. Just pump up a blood pressure cuff and, and look at it for a little bit or move your arm around. And you'll see it starts to drop. So you're not holding occlusion in that. And, and then for a cell swelling model um, or, or BFR model, um, if, if you're just letting the, the, the gauge drift down, um, you're, you're losing everything you're holding in there. So, so sometimes the devil's in the details on these things. So we'll see. Cool. All right. Any, any other thoughts on that? So it sounds like we endorse E-STEM with BFR. Go for it. Yeah. Why not, man? It's like, you know, I, I think we've got enough in, in the few studies that we have to, to say, why not combine it? Um, it there's no, it's no extra real burden and the patients that I've done it with and I've seen it used with, they tolerate it really well. You guys all agree. Yeah. 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 And then I would just say the last thing there, Johnny, we were talking about the clinical application is that Jamie, Jamie Burr's paper did do it four days a week. Yeah. uh, Once a day. So, you know, not necessarily three, but it definitely brings it a lot more closer to the realm of, uh, of the clinical aspect than what we get, say, out of the Natsume paper for people in third-party payer systems. Exactly. Although the duration was probably longer than most people clinically do it, six weeks. Correct. But you never yep. know. Some people do do it for a while. And and I guess we're not, we didn't really talk about it, but there is another clinical one in a spinal cord injury model where in the upper extremity, the combination of BFR and E-STEM help with the with the extensor forearm muscle group, which which is one of the significant muscle wasters in in C8 and above spinal cord injuries. And so yeah, that's a pretty good clinical model. It was an RCT preserved strength and and preserved hypertrophy as well, I believe. It, it yeah, did. It, there was yeah. there was in the yeah. ECRL, I think it was 15%. And that was a, within subject design as well. So that's a, it was a pretty good change. Yeah, yeah. And and that was done with the VA and, and some civilian yep. partners as well. So Good group yeah. that looked at it, and, and that's an interesting model. Is moving in, and you know we've we've discussed this with some spinal cord centers. Is is doing that in the lower extremity to potentially just preserve muscle 
so just so you're not losing muscle mass down down in the lower extremities. Very very easy to do, and we have a, a nonprofit organization out in in Colorado, um, the Chanda Plan. Uh, awesome people that are piloting this right now in in spinal cord injury folks, and so we should hopefully get some good results here in the, in the next month or two from them. Well, cool. All right, fellas. That's good stuff. I'm going to break off and interview Stephen. We're, we're going to do deep dive on, on IPC. Um, that, that's his that's his specialty. And, and then a bunch of his other clinical work that's going on. And then we'll come back and let, let's answer a couple of questions. Um, we got we got a bunch of awesome ones that came in on our inner circle. And, and Tori just brought a bunch yesterday that were called in. So I will be right back after talking to Stephen. All right. Peace. All right, and now we're moving into our Ask the Expert with our guest today, Dr. Stephen Patterson. Uh, Stephen is a senior lecturer in sport and physiology and strength and conditioning at St. Mary's University in, in Twickenham, London. Uh, he graduated with a BSc in sport and exercise science from Napier University in Edinburgh before completing his uh, MSc in medicine and sports science and exercise from, dude, I can't even say the name of that Glasgow University. What, what the Strath, heck? Strathclyde. Strathclyde. <laughs> you used every, every, <laughs> every letter in the alphabet there. He then moved to Lowborough University where he completed his PhD specializing on the responses and adaptations to exercise with blood flow restriction. Um, Stephen, you can find him on Twitter at, at Stephen underscore Pat, P-A-T-T. That, that seems to be your, your biggest social place you're at, right? You're not, you're not a big Instagram or Snapchatter. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't have any of the other two, unfortunately. Yeah. But we need more ways. I'll just give out your personal cell then for other ways for people to, <laughs> to get in touch with whatever, whatever works. Cool. The Stephen and I have been friends for, for, I guess, several years now. I was trying to think the other day, like how we first met or, or when we first started talking. I, I think it was your, um, your survey study. Like I might have yeah, touched after that. It probably was. It was probably whenever we were putting that survey together, we were sort of contacting different people who were using blood flow restriction. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember if we'd talked before that, but that was yeah. probably around about the first it's, time. It's weird. We talk all the time and email all the time and do this work together, and, and we've never met in person. So um, it, it's always on on video stuff like this. But we are. So just want to throw it out there. Um, this is kind of a pre podcast to us being together at combined sections meeting. If you're not in the physical therapy world in the States, CSM is uh, is our PT association's largest meeting. Um, it's in Washington, D.C. this year. Um, usually have about 19 to 20,000 rehab folks there. So Stephen and I are going to be presenting on a lot of what we talk about today. I think we're still got to figure out exactly what we're presenting. Um, I was just thinking the same. We have yeah. to maybe decide where we're going to go with that. We'll figure that out the day before. It's no big deal. And so, But we will be talking about BFR and ischemic preconditioning and a lot of stuff that, that we're doing here in the States and, and what Stephen's doing over there. He's he's one of the world experts here in blood flow restriction, and, and we really look to a lot of his research and what he does to, to help guide what we're doing here in the states and so Stephen, thanks for being on man no thanks very much for having me you're our first uh, european accent on this podcast so you just made us like 10 times smarter than regular so nobody normally says that about the northern irish accent to be well fair, yeah so. well all your accents sound the same so irish or whatever we had we had my friend kevin tipton so he's from the states but he's been over there so long he he has this like fake european accent now so you sound better than than he does. So, welcome, man. So as long as people, as long as people can understand. Yeah, you're good. You're Scottish people. We can't understand those guys. They're usually just drunk, <laughs> though, right? Yeah, big time. So we're doing CSM. You just finished a conference, I think, right? Were you in Italy speaking? 
Yes, I was over there at the Italian Orthopaedic Research um, Conference where I was presenting to a group of surgeons on, um, on blood flow restriction training, essentially. To be honest with you, I was a little bit lost. Everyone was speaking Italian and <laughs> I literally didn't have a clue what was going on, yeah, <laughs> even yeah. to the point where I was due to talk at two o'clock and I think they had a, a vote whilst I was sitting in the room and they moved it forward by two hours and I didn't realise I was presenting until they called me up. <laughs> so it was a little bit, it went well, they seemed to enjoy it, but it was a little bit, the English slides, but everyone yeah. spoke in Italian, so it was a little bit different. Yeah, I just spoke with some folks in Italy a couple of weeks ago and that's what they're saying is most of the countries in, in Europe speak English, except for Italy where they really don't at all. So they just yeah. don't even try. Oh, well. well, well they all, hopefully it went down well. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Are you are you done with conferences this year? Yes, that will be me until until January, until we we do okay. our talk. Um, so yeah, wrap up for Christmas. First time in DC. Yes, it is my first time in DC. Been to America a few times, but never to DC. So right, looking forward cool. to. It. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna have a couple extra days, I think, right, to check out some stuff. Yeah, so. awesome. It's it's a great city. You know, a little it's a little bit of a wacky place right now with with what's going on with our government. So. <laughs> <laughs> but but the okay. city's cool. There's good stuff there. Okay, so let's let's roll right into this because you got a bunch of studies that are that are published, and you know we're not going to talk about every one of them. But I kind of want to get a flow here of some of the clinical things that you're doing and, and helping us with, and, and as well as ischemic preconditions. Which, which you're kind of one of the one of the experts, along with some other folks we know in the world on this. So, I guess I kind of want to go to clinical first and, and ACL because we got a lot of kind of ACL traction going. So we we put out a the special BFR uh, edition in techniques in orthopedics and and you and, and your PhD student Luke Hughes did a, a paper on ACL and, and kind of all the topics and, and papers that are published on BFR with that. So that's a great resource, I think, for people to go to because it's just an overall good, you know, this is the way BFR might work with ACL. And, and then right now we've got the book chapter um, that we're working on with Dr. Noya's book chapter, which is due very quickly. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. And, and that's going to be primarily focusing on post-op surgery and, and BFR and ACL. So, so that's another one. And, and then you guys put out the basically BFR novel approach to augment clinical rehab, how to do it in BJSM. And that, that's just a quick, like one and a half pager of, of if clinically, this is how I would do BFR. So I would steer people to that one too, just to get some quick insight on that. And then most recently, if you can go into it, Luke and, and, and your paper, along with some of the other guys there in, in the clinical side on, on ACLs with BFR versus high load and, and, and what you guys saw in that. Can you tell us a little bit about that paper? Yeah, certainly. Um, I said we, I suppose I should just first mention about Luke. Um, Luke Hughes is my PhD student. He's actually just submitted his PhD today. So um, it's all, and it's his birthday. So I think he's, he's quite glad it's all done. Nice. Um, and he'll do, his, he'll do his Viva in January. But Luke's, obviously, Luke's PhD was focused mainly on ACL rehab. So we, we had a large um, ACL rehab study ongoing within the NHS here in England. And essentially, we decided to have a little look at the acute responses within these patients um, and have a look and see whether or not what was happening acutely from a pain perspective and from the sensations during um, blood flow restriction in that population. And the the study that we were using, the, the, the hospital are actually, actually use heavy loads for their rehab, 
and what's relatively heavy, you know, following a surgery. Mm-hmm. So we were looking at adding the blood flow restriction in from the, the papers that we'd done and the research, looking to see whether we think this could be a better tool, especially in those early stages. Mm-hmm. And essentially what we did was we, we compared three groups. We had a an ACL rehab, so that had their surgery and they used blood flow restriction acutely on a one-off bout. They then had the control leg, which used blood flow restriction but wasn't injured. And then you had another group which used blood flow restriction or just um, with heavy load training, sorry, in mm-hmm. ACL also. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially what we found was the actual exercise itself was harder from an RPE. So people felt it was harder when they used blood flow restriction um, in comparison following surgery in comparison to blood flow restriction without surgery, so the control leg, which mm-hmm. makes sense. They've had yeah. surgery. It's going to feel a bit harder to do the exercise. More importantly, muscle pain itself, so the pain that the sensations they felt during the exercise was higher um, in blood flow restriction in both conditions and compared to heavy load training. But probably the most important thing, the, knee, the pain around the knee joint itself was reduced in blood flow restriction compared to the heavy group, right. more than likely because of the um, the load that's being used. Right. So whilst the, the muscle pain is higher, the actual knee pain where the surgeries obviously occurred is lower. Um, and probably more importantly, we actually demonstrated that pain was then reduced 24 hours post-application of blood flow restriction or heavy load training. So we find that... Um, the BFR has some sort of analgesic effect mm-hmm. in, that, in that early stage rehab, um, which we we haven't published the follow-up data from the training study, but we're seeing that happens across a time period as well. Yeah. And a, a little bit like some of the studies that's coming out of Aspatar yeah. um, and other groups that are basically demonstrating this analgesic effect from blood flow restriction training. Yeah, that, and, and that seems to be the, the hot topic clinically um, with this. It's is really this, what's, what's the analgesic response? And it, it just always seems to be there. And, and so, uh, and, and I guess like in America, we're in this opioid crisis and whatever we can do to reduce post-operative pain um, is, is something that's, that's highly fundable. Um, so we're very interested in, in can we show that there's even less opioid usage um, in these post-operative conditions? Um, so I think that's a, a, an awesome angle to look at. Yeah, I think it's a really, to me, certainly from my perspective, it's, it's the big standout from blood flow restriction and what it's doing. Why it's happening, yeah. God only knows. You yeah. know, we have to really get into the research. But we know there's evidence there from even ischemic preconditioning, reducing pain post-surgery. Um, so there, there's clearly something happening from a, you know, from the re- restriction of blood flow to right. the muscle. Um, but... As I said, it's it's a pretty consistent message that's coming out now in clinical populations, yeah. which, like, let's be realistic, we were doing all this research in healthy populations who weren't in pain in the first place. Right. So nobody was thinking that it was you know, going to help in any way. But you know, the more the evidence is now clearly demonstrating that, and I think it's time to start to getting to grips with yeah, and why that, that's happening. Exactly. All the healthy stuff was, yeah, BFR is harder, it, RPEs are higher, it sucks worse than, <laughs> than regular yeah. exercise, you know. But, but yeah, if, if, and that's what we see all the time is the patients are like, man, I, I just feel like my muscle is, is like really under a crisis right, right now, which, which is what they want to feel um, more than, oh, my God, my knee's killing me. Um, from what I did. So so that's awesome. And I guess the last variable was that y'all did look at hemodynamics and, and they didn't change between the heavy lifting and BFR as well. Yeah, which, so we, we didn't see any changes or anything in that. So, um, yeah. which, which is, is obviously, 
a good thing. Yeah, and then an ACL population is kind of like whatever, but but a, a, a joint population, so a total knee or, or or a total hip or whatever, where you're maybe worried a little bit more about the cardiovascular load. That's also a, a kind of promising pearl we see postoperatively. Not a lot of people yeah. have looked at the postoperative hemodynamic changes, so I think that's yeah. also some. And I think you know, like if we if we think about it logically, there's no real. From that side of things, there doesn't seem to be a big difference between blood flow restriction and normal resistance exercise. Right. You know, there, there doesn't seem to be this greater risk that, you know, if I think back to whenever we first started this and some of the concerns that were being, you know, asked of us by doctors and so on, yeah. you know, the, the evidence is pretty clear there that that's not, that isn't the case. Now, obviously, like everything, the more patient populations that we have, the more surgeries and more clinical groups that we work with, we can demonstrate that to a greater extent. Right. But to me, it, you know, I'm pretty confident in that regard. That yeah. The, that side of things pretty low. We had an inflammatory paper with the EPR, a call for concern with blood flow restriction, you know, and, and stuff like that gets people kind of worked up and freaked out a little bit. But, but yeah, even our down at University of Miami with our cardiac rehab kind of experts, you know, they're getting ready to move into their full randomized trial of, of using BFR in, in a cardiac compromised population. So if those guys feel like it's something that, that has potential safety in that group, that's awesome. So I guess that rolls us into this next part, especially the analgesic effect, because um, you have a paper that also just came out recently with, with the military in the UK. It, it's interesting because there's a lot of synergy with with what I was doing with the Department of Defense and still doing with the Department of Defense and, and what they're doing. So I had a call with them a couple of weeks ago and, and he said basically we're maybe a few years ahead and kind of where we're looking at it, but but they're catching up quick and very interested. And, and that's BFR in that you, military population. They do it a little bit differently. They do these inpatient bouts with it. But but the yep. big thing that they were very interested in was the analgesic effect in that. And so can you touch base maybe a little bit on on Peter Ladlow's paper that, that you guys just put out? Yeah, certainly. So this was this was a, a paper a long time in coming. Um, you know, if I think, I'm trying to even think, it's probably about four years maybe that we first, four or five years that we first started discussing um, the idea of doing the study. Mm-hmm. Um, myself and Russ Kopak had actually presented at um, a conference at St. Mary's back in about 2010, um, so it was a long time whenever we first started talking about blood flow restriction. Yeah. Um, but we, they basically have a situation where they, as you said, they have these inpatients who come in for almost three-week blocks. And mm-hmm. um, when they're, they basically have issues with their function within their whatever unit they work with. So it was a little bit of a pilot study in that we have a range of different lower body injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not a fixed specific type injury. We've had, you know, people recovering from surgery, people with patellofemoral pain and other pain issues. Right. And essentially we, um, we tried, because they had the three-week block, we almost tried to mimic the Nielsen study, which was a high-frequency study done in yeah. the healthy population. Yeah, so in theory, results. they... Yeah. So in theory, they did um, 23 sessions over the three-week period Mm -hmm. um, with blood flow restriction. Again, the the comparison group was a heavy load training because even though they lack function, they were still able to lift heavy. Mm -hmm. um, But they only did that three times a week. Mm-hmm. So the 23 sessions just last about eight minutes each session, whereas the three times a week lasted um, was about a total of an hour each session. So slightly, you know, different um, groups in that regard. But essentially, um, again, we found that both conditions improve strength and muscle mass to a similar extent. Okay, so if you're looking at it just 
solely based on those outcome measures. There doesn't seem to be much difference between heavy load training and blood flow restriction. But probably the biggest thing was we actually seen improvements in function with blood flow restriction only. Now, it was very limited. It was balance tests and it was um, shuttle walking tests. But at the end of the day, that's why they were being sent out of their unit into the inpatient group was because they lacked function. Right. So the idea that we can get this improved function, um, which we don't seem to be getting with the heavy load training, right. um, even though they're getting stronger and they're getting larger muscles, the function isn't improving. So there seems to be something inhibiting the functional adaptations there. Um, now, we didn't specifically measure it. We looked at pain with blood flow restriction across each session that sort of and we what we see we see a decrease in pain during the actual exercise you know as people become more accustomed to blood flow restriction exercise it doesn't feel as tough right which you know makes yeah. sense yeah but you know we we can't specifically say because we didn't measure but we believe that what we were probably seeing there was some link with some analgesic effect which then allows them to, to function better right um, and, and again that backs up i think lachlan giles and jill cook's work they did a patellofemoral study, which very similar, heavy loading versus blood flow restriction. Right. And again, found both groups improved to some extent, but actually it was a blood flow restriction has an analgesic effect, which then improves function and outcome measures. Right. So I think that's potentially what we're seeing there in that regard. Um, again, why? <laughs> yeah. A million dollar yeah. question. But I think, you know, like anything else, you need to work hard and that seems to then um, inhibit um, the pain sensations that you feel. Yeah. And, and, and so we, we do a similar model here, especially like, like at our center, the like special forces guys, they would come and maybe just do two or three weeks or or have a surgery and we'd have them for, you know, uh, two or three weeks afterwards. I, I know like it's Devin Phillip on here in Vell, they, they get surgery and then they go straight over to Howard Head, which is their PT group and, and do their PT there. And you've got this like short couple of weeks. So the one thing that's interesting is you can cram a lot of sessions in. Um, and, and, you know, you're probably not having as much pain, um, because you're not putting load through, through the joint. I mean, for most of us, uh, putting, putting that much load through patellofemoral pain, you're going to crush the patients anyways. But, but so you can, you can get more sessions in, which, you know, over time we might find out if we can dial everything in right, that that's very valuable. Did y'all kind of specify, like, this is how much of a break you do between, AM, PM sessions, you know, we always, we had this kind of like, we just said you had to have at least a four hour window or, or was it just get in when you can get in? Yeah, no, they, so they've, you know, they've obviously got their, their days planned out quite mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, so it was almost a matter of fitting it in to them to try and, you know, fit it yeah. a little bit. So uh, I think off the top of my head, it, it was four or five hours more logistical thing than anything. But I think, you know, you want to make sure there's enough, even though it's, it's a short time frame, you know, you're still working hard. Yeah. And you still have that you still have that acute fatigue that happens following BFR. Right. So you want to give sufficient recovery time to make sure that they can perform the next task, right. you know, or the next exercise. Yeah, yeah, cool. And so, yeah, like you said, this is pilot and talking with those guys. It, it sounds like they're hoping to maybe go multi-center. Yep. Within the UK, which which will be great, and they they really do things well with tracking and stuff like that. So. Yeah, uh, so that that's the plan moving forward to try and get a bit of a, a bigger multi-center study going, okay. um, to try and really sort of at the end of the day, if they're, I said the biggest problem is we, we we sent half the population back with more muscle mass and more strength, but not improved function, mm -hmm. which is why they were there in the first place. So if we can have a tool that allows them to improve the function, that's a better outcome for them in those sure. three weeks. So, so to me, uh, you know, they want to just try and track it over a bigger number of patients to try and see if they can see it, and maybe a. Also, then we'll be able to get a bit more control over the different types of injuries, and we might be able to start 
weeding out different mechanisms because of the patient groups that we're actually working with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you guys had patients with post-op hip arthroscopy, it looked like, all the way down to lower leg. So it was kind of the whole limb. That's a tough study. Yeah. Exactly. A very mixed bag of patients. Yeah. And I guess just to piggyback on that, the, the tactical athlete, that, that's a big topic here. We, we I, I'm pretty sure it just was accepted 100%. We have a paper coming out, you and me and, and the uh, the head of the Naval Academy Sports Medicine orthopedic surgeon there, a friend of ours, um, in, in sports medicine arthroscopy review. So it's the warrior athlete um, and, and blood flow restriction applications and that. So hopefully that'll be coming out early 2019 so people in the tactical world can start seeing some of our, our ways we're applying this as well. So I guess rolling on from clinical, um, the military side and, and ACL, and, and then you guys have done some reviews um, and the survey studies. So I, I, you guys were the first ones that did, and, and there's not a, a, a lot of papers that, that we can roll into it, but the systematic review and analysis of looking at the clinical papers, uh, what few we had with BFR. And so you want to touch on just maybe the, the little pearls that y'all saw in that? Yeah, certainly. So again, that was just the, the first part of Luke's PhD. We thought, you know, let's let's get a grip on what we actually know within musculoskeletal conditions. So we, we did a systematic review and meta-analysis, which is in British Journal of Sports Medicine. You know, as I say, as you said, we were limited by the number of studies that were available to us. I think we included, um, once we looked at inclusion criteria, um, with 20 studies. And out of that, only three were in ACL. Um, I think three were in osteoarthritis and then 13 were with sarcopenic individuals. So people who were older. Yeah. So, you know, realistically, <laughs> they're older, but it doesn't mean they can't function. So right. there was a, you know, we are limited. Now, that's not to say what's happening now. There's a lot more studies. We know what's currently going on. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the studies you're involved in and so on. But also there's a lot more that's now been published. Um, but essentially, you know, the main takeaway message from that research and that evidence that we had was that, Blood flow restriction with low loads was superior to low load training alone, which is what we normally see in those early stages of rehab. So we know when people can't load and they're load compromised, you know, the application of blood flow restriction will improve strength at that perspective at that time point. Whereas heavy loading was better than blood flow restriction with low load. And again, that follows pretty much across the board in all the healthy population studies. But our, our sort of take home with it was you know, early stage rehab blood flow restriction, transferring into that heavy load training once you can start to get certain adaptations. The only thing I would sort of say about that is in more recent times, and just looking at the data that's out there, and again, without having done redone a meta-analysis to confirm this, but if you look at some of the recent studies, you've got, again, Lachlan Giles' group um, in Australia who have just compared blood flow restriction with heavy load training in a patient population, patellofemoral pain, and they found blood flow restriction is better for strength than heavy loading um, and with a reduced pain, which makes sense because mm-hmm. it's the pain that inhibits their ability to produce force. Mm-hmm. Our study with um, the... The Army, again, has shown they're both the same with regards to strength and mass, but functionally, the blood flow restriction is better. Mm-hmm. And again, um, the studies that we haven't finished, we haven't published yet when the Luke's ACL paper, again, we've demonstrated again that strength and muscle mass are better with blood flow restriction than heavy loading. Again, in those early stages, they, they start to close together near the end of the trial, but actually function is better in blood flow restriction. Right. Um, mainly via reduced pain again, and they also reduce swelling that we have demonstrated also in that in that study, which hopefully we will publish soon. Right. So, I think when you probably have a look at this again in a couple of years' time, we will actually maybe see in clinical groups that 
blood flow restriction may be as useful as heavy loading in those patients. And the biggest standout to me that I'm seeing in all those papers are we are now individualizing pressures. Mm -hmm. So those papers are all using between 60 and 80% LOP mm -hmm. in the lower body, whereas before they were just using arbitrary pressures. Yeah, so that's, that's. Because, that, because that's the way it was set up in, in the past. Yeah. So to me, I think once... Again, I, I can't be 100% on it because, you know, we obviously have to do the science. But I think anywhere between 60 and 80% LOP, we're mm -hmm. starting to see it as effective as heavy load training. Right. Yeah, no, and I agree. I mean, obviously, we speak the same language with standardization and, and personalizing it. I mean, you can't repeat it when, when people are just guessing pressures or, or sometimes we don't even know what pressure they used. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I guess that's, like you said, the main takeaway right now is in, in this current state, if you have an alter, if you have to do low load exercise clinically, you should probably put a tourniquet on. Uh, that, that's kind of the yeah. way that we skin the cat here, and, and, and then we say if they can lift load, then maybe they don't need the tourniquet, and they probably don't. So let's just have them lift load because we want them off these tourniquets and being able to get back to the gym or, or life or whatever. But then there's also, and I think Jeremy may have pointed this out or something, but there's also a whole specificity of, of the test retests in these studies. Cause it, you know, there's always this, the BFR has, you know, looks like more cross-sectional area than maybe high load in some of these, but then strength is more in the high load, but you have one group that the entire time, all they did was lift heavy loads. And the, the baseline test was a heavy load. And the retest was testing a heavy load, like a one RM first one group that all they did was lift light. Um, so they didn't really train for the test as well. So, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. And I think you yeah. see, as Jeremy's shown a few times, I think you see that clearly mm -hmm. when you look at other strength tests. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that comes out. I think the other thing is, like, if you'd asked me this question two years ago, mm -hmm. I was very clear: blood flow restriction, um, transferring into heavy load, no yeah. doubt about it. And that's the way I would go. And I'm still, I'm still on that path. Mm -hmm. I just think that even in situations now where we're seeing people who can lift heavy. Mm -hmm are still inhibited by pain mm -hmm. and it's it's inhibiting their outcome measures mm -hmm. and potentially the blood flow restriction if we can work out the mechanism by which it's doing so seems to be able to reduce pain and, and again that's what they're doing in aspatar yeah. so they have a they you know they're taking their patients and they're saying right pain inhibits your ability to lift heavy mm -hmm. we use blood flow restriction for the first exercise mm -hmm. That reduces, that gives you that analgesic effect. And all of a sudden, they then transfer in the second exercise of the day is heavy loading and right. they can tolerate they can tolerate that heavy loading. Right. So it's there's definitely the pain that inhibits their ability to produce force. And that's what's having an impact. Yeah, yeah. I know it's fascinating. And then even taking that to a, another level here in the States with, with some of our professional teams, especially the NBA, using it pre-game um, with these yeah. people that are that are having some issues. And so that's that's that magic question, too, is what's the volume then? You know, and, and I just talked to one of our teams the other day and they said, you know, we're we're getting away with one set um, and we're getting this analgesic response. that seems to get, you know, some of these nagging injuries through the game. So so you're not maybe getting into a fatigue state. So that that's our next like 10 years of studies, you know. <laughs> Do you need to no, do 20 reps? Does it need to be 80 percent occlusion, 60 percent? Um, use stem with it or whatever. But, but yeah, it's it's, it's a fascinating kind of pre non drug like drug to get the pain inhibition down. So good. And then moving on, the the older the you know it's funny these papers. You look at the date, you're like, man, that only came out a couple of years ago. But I know you guys worked on it from a lot longer. The survey study, yeah. just some of the pearls from that, because you want to talk about how you guys set that up and, and maybe some of the key takeaways. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, it's one of these things that 
again, we're speaking a little bit like, you know, we hadn't met, even though we've been contacting back and forward. And the same yeah. thing happened with Chris, Chris Brandner. Uh, he was doing his PhD and we'd, we'd been in conversation with each other via email. And then we actually met um, at, a, at a conference, a European College of Sports Science conference where he flew over from Australia and I was there. So we, we chatted a little bit there and we decided to, we're almost taking a step back all these things that we've done since are almost a follow-on from this questionnaire study because mm. essentially we were a little bit worried about what was being done and how blood flow restriction was being used. You know, we've been speaking to teams and speaking to practitioners and hearing what they were doing and some of it was going, oh, we're not quite sure why that's coming out. So we put together the questionnaire study, put it through a few people to sort of see whether or not, you know, we, we were picking up all the questions and all the points we wanted to. And essentially, with about 250 responses, we just did an online survey with 250 responses. And out of that, about, I think there's 115 of them had used blood flow restriction. Mm-hmm. You know, me, most of the people were coming from the UK and Europe. There were some in the States. Um, we didn't, and a few in Brazil. Um, mm-hmm. There seems to be little pockets of researchers all over in certain countries, really. Um, and I said, out of those 115 who had used it, we asked according, you know, resistance exercise passively or aerobically. And obviously resistance exercise would be as far as our main sort of area um, that most people have used. I think the biggest thing and what I thought would happen and what we've seen was there was a there was a really big discrepancy between the pressures that people were applying um, and the types of cuffs that people were using, which is what, you know, I said, I'd, I'd seen it being used in other people and knew what people were doing. So I wasn't surprised to see that, but I thought it was good to get that out there to try and find that information. So essentially we were seeing people were, you know, using, when we even asked them why they were using pressures, they were picking it out of either, a, you know, a paper that they've seen, which mm. might've been an arbitrary pressure, mm. but then that doesn't apply to their groups. Yeah. Um, and I think or out the, of them all together. Using, yeah. yeah. So the cuffs yeah. that we're using, you know, you're talking from knee wraps right up to anything that would just restrict mm-hmm. pressure, the widths and so on. So most people were not taking into account, you know, cuff width, pressure, the the interbalance between the two of them, individualizing pressures, all that. Nobody was doing that. And that's why we ended up putting out the the editorial that you mentioned, because we wanted to say, here's some a bit more clearer guidelines that we should be using rather than actually just go and let's do whatever. Yeah. Um, and obviously from this, I, you know, the big thing I had was that there's a clear lack of education within blood flow restriction. There's a clear lack of people understanding how they should be using it. And like, I don't, I actually don't blame people for that. At the end of the day, it's my interest to research this. You know, you're interested, you're interested in it, and so on. But people, if you've got practitioners, you've got people working in elite soccer clubs or you know in the NFL and so on, they don't have time to read all the literature. Right. They don't have time to be so. You know, they're going to pick up what they've done before. Does it work for them? Yes, they'll stick at it and they'll keep going, even if it's not optimal and even if it's not giving them what they you know right. could get. Right. So, um, we find that. Again, you know, you're just having all these problems with the pressures that were being used. Um, even some cases where people were using blood flow restriction with resistance exercise, and they were using it for more than 30 minutes solid without yeah. a rest period. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be recommending that. And again, I c- couldn't think of a single study mm-hmm. where anyone has done that. Mm-hmm. But again, we, we had people reporting that's what they were doing. There's a there's a guru here in the states that's you know he's recommending that, that people do that from what I've heard. You know, leave it on for thirty to forty minutes at a time to get the systemic effect. And yeah. like, wow, yeah. I think 
people I said people are just getting a bit confused with the different types you know obviously we know if you use it passively there's think ways you can do it but it's more like IPC it's five on five off yeah. or so um you can do a little bit longer from an aerobic perspective because you know probably the lo- the forces and loads that aren't going through are probably you know a lot less than the resistance yeah. exercise sure but I just think there's a real you know, if you look at resistance exercise, there's some early work back when I started my PhD that had demonstrated if you leave the cuff on for 20 minutes, it was actually having a negative effect on adaptations right. um, from a blood flow perspective because it was actually um, reducing the adaptation effect because it seemed to be too long. It was maybe causing some sort of ischemic reperfusion injury. Exactly. So I think people are just – from that, the big take-home from that was – there are no clear guidelines and we need we need to put some together um and whilst as practitioners and researchers we obviously we maybe know what we're doing and we maybe have that idea of um why we should be doing things in the real world it's a bit like the wild west and people will actually just do whatever they think will work for that time yeah and that's where you know we've seen high i think we've seen like um 20 30 percent people reported dom you know muscle soreness you, know, you look at a you look at a research study hardly anyone reports muscle I know. soreness and when i saw your paper that was that was fascinating to me we almost we almost never get that report so yeah um, um and you know even but even things like numbness yeah. nearly 20 percent of people reported numbness which yeah. is a clear issue with the pressure that they're using yeah. the, the, um, the biggest risk factor with tourniquets in general right is a palsy so yeah, yeah. And, and even things like dizziness and other things so there's a there's clearly, and I have no doubt, it's the way people are applying the pressure and the width of the cuff. Because, you know, you again, as we know, because of individualized pressures, I'm sure there's people who are applying higher pressures with yeah. wider cuffs yeah. and they're, they're fully restricting flow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. co- that's causing some of these side effects. Right. And, and, and if you even look at the tourniquet literature, you know, the tourniquets increase postoperative pain. And, and there seems to be a, it's a it's a time duration it's a pressure and a time duration thing and so um, it also looks like you know if you're leaving tourniquets on for prolonged periods of time if people leave it on for 30 40 minutes you might be moving into a increased pain response than actually an analgesic response so yeah, yeah. so good on you that, that that was interesting stuff to see and yeah some of those um, side effects were, were, were also fascinating um, but again it it sounds like it's application issues more than anything so Certainly. yeah and then moving on you you know just to touch base follow up then you've done some papers to to kind of put in like maybe what application should be um, so you, one of them is, is just looking now. We're we're doing LOPs and, and trying to figure out like what what to what personalizes this to people. Um, we've all done it. Supine um, part of it's the instrument that that, that I like to use. Um, it, it's it, it measures easiest if the people aren't moving at all. And and so you guys are showing that supine is different than sitting versus standing when you're looking at at pressure. So do you want to touch base on on what you guys saw with that? Yeah, again, it was just one of these things that we were. We were we were sort of trying to debate. We're setting these pressures based off um, the you know LOP and the way people are. Obviously, most people were looking at supine, and some of Jeremy's work was actually looking. at They do a lot of stuff standing up mm-hmm. um, when they when they measure it, and we were sort of considering. Well, actually, if we're saying the most effective you know LOP um, is potentially closer to that sixty to eighty percent range. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, what happens whenever we you know, we do an exercise which isn't in the position that we've measured LOP. Um, and I know Jeremy's done some stuff between showing demonstrating between 40 and 80% LOP in the upper body is the is equivalent. Yeah. But actually, if you're measuring supine 
and you then stand up and pressure does change um, and you drop below 40%, well, is it effective? And actually, are you getting, again, that minimal um, or the optimal adaptation that you're trying to achieve? So, you know, we just really basically looked at um, moving people from different body positions. They still rested as much as you can for five minutes standing up or, you know, five minutes seated and so on and, and so fine. But essentially, as you'd expect, as we progressively moved up, so from supine to seated um, and then seated to standing, pressure increased. Um, but the reason that we were looking at that was because it was uh, it was both from a blood flow restriction and a spine preconditioning perspective. We were trying to suggest that more from IPCs, we don't actually standardise on pressures still, even though we're sort of suggested otherwise. So we um, we, we, we demonstrate that you can measure in different ways, and actually, actually we recommend they can measure it in the body position that you do most of your exercise to get a more accurate reflection. Does that mean that it has to be 100% or not? And, and did we have, we have some issues with it? Yes, yes, more with the standard hand version. version. Standard hand version didn't hit 100% for everyone. So you know, there's a few people who didn't get measurements from, from standard, so that's obviously a limitation in that regard. Um, but, right. yeah, but yeah, um, um, pretty simple study, study but, but um, um, we, we are seeing, are seeing um, um, like most of the stuff, most stuff we've been doing for more time in the position. Right. Yeah, and, 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 it, and it totally makes sense. So, I mean, I, I think if you're at best practice tip of the spear, that, that's probably the best way to go about it. Again, logistics in the clinic are going to win, and, and if you can't get an LLP. Right. And, and so, I guess moving on from just some of our application talk and clinical talk is, is more of, of something I know you're pretty passionate about is, is the performance side of, of occlusion. And so I guess we can't just say BFR because now you got to say IPC, uh, ischemic preconditioning or ischemic postconditioning. Um, some people use all these terms interchangeably. So can you, can you give a, a, a brief breakdown of what IPC is? Yeah, certainly. I think it's one of these things where – all my research seems to be having some form of weird obsession with tourniquets. Um, I don't really know how You're I can... taking over the world, sort of, man. I know. I know. We just sort of <laughs> seem to, to go that way. Um, mm-hmm. But ischemic precondition is essentially um, intermittent periods of full occlusion or full restriction um, of blood flow to the muscle itself. So we can do it remotely. So we do it you know, either in the arm or in the leg. Um, and we do that for five minutes with five minutes reperfusion or recovery in between and repeat that three or four times. And essentially, it follows on from a lot of work that was, that's been done in the past in animals and in humans, which has looked to use this to prevent ischemic reperfusion injury um, or other injuries to different organs within the, the body itself. And for some reason, just like I suppose the way it normally happens, you do all this research in clinical populations and in you know animals, and then all of a sudden somebody from sport decides actually that might work. Mm-hmm. Let's let's give it let's give it a go. And then you know people start sort of researching a little bit. So um, we had a, a previous PhD student, Jonathan Griffin, who um, now works at Fulham Football Club. He did a lot of he did his whole PhD in blood in ischemic preconditioning type work, um, and we've done a we've done a range of different studies from a performance side of things. I think one of the reasons also is that you know where we're based at St Mary's, you know we've got a really big sort of online masters in strength and conditioning, and it's a uh, you know we've got a lot of performance orientated students. Um, so I think that's how, you know, we always want to be able to get up-to-date research for those guys as well so that they can actually use it in practice. Right, right. And, and so IPC, ischemic preconditioning, is, is doing the stimulus before some sort of bout. And then 
post ischemic preconditioning is doing it after about, uh, I guess is yeah. the best terminology nowadays. And, yeah. and, and yeah, if you just put a, a Google scholar alert out for IPC or RIPC, the, the amount of papers daily, um, and, and not so much on, in, in our world of, of musculoskeletal, but, uh, looking at anything from preserving damage to the brain, to cardiac, to liver, to, to angiogenesis, neurogenesis, everything. It's, it, it's pretty fascinating. So it's hot topic. Um, not just in, in the clinical rehab world and in, in sports performance world. Um, and, and I guess the big thing too is it, it seems like it should be full occlusion. Um, although that hasn't really been studied yet. Right. Yeah, am, no. am I right? Yeah, you know, you're 100%. I think most of us are based in work, you know, really early re- lab, lab work, you know, in, um, in animals and so on, which they are using full restriction. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and they're using a, pre- you know, if you look at most of the stuff, and here's the biggest caveat of it all, and I'm look, you know, I'm talking about our own research and the limitations that we have with the work that we've done. Everyone uses an arbitrary pressure, mm-hmm. with, which is hilarious when you think about all the stuff we're talking about with blood flow restriction and individualizing pressure. <laughs> um, and, you know, the idea that we just, we, you know, you almost get into a way you do it that way and then that's what happens. But yeah. it's because in the arm where most of it work was done, especially clinically, mm-hmm. you know, 220, 220, which is what the pressure most of them use, mm-hmm. is well above um systolic blood pressure so you know you're getting full restriction but the minute you move that into the leg which we demonstrated with our pressure study or our you know different body position study Mm -hmm. all of a sudden 220 for a lot of people is not fully restrictive right or or for someone it's way above occlusion so if you're at 110 or 150 percent occlusion um does that change it yeah, that, that's the, that's the stuff that we just don't know yeah, yet. Yeah, and and then a lot of it, and, and even with the BFR stuff, if you're using like a, a, a blood pressure cuff or a lot, of, you know, these people using like pump up tourniquet type things, um, that when you're just using a pressure gauge, there's a drift, and so you you see it, you pump it up, and then it starts to drop because it can't maintain the pressure. So so a modern pneumatic tourniquet. It, it always adapts, and, and whatever pressure you have, it's going to maintain that pressure for you. But these pump-up things, you pump it up, and then it starts to slowly drop and lose pressure. And, and so you also wonder of, of allowing a, a reperfusion um, during that five-minute session. What, what does that actually have an effect on? Um, so yeah, 100%. 100% you know, like the, it's clear that the, the types of cuffs that you're using and so on, they need to be able to restrict the blood flow properly. Right. And if they're not doing so, then... If, if we do believe that we need that full restriction, then you're not getting it. Yeah. And, and then the next question, and a lot of it I think we've borrowed again from the cardiac research, is um, how much time? You know, it's anywhere. It seems like from three to five minutes is, is average. And then it's from one to five rounds is average um, with equal rest times. Do you, do you have comments on that? Yeah, I think most, you know, if you look, if you look at most of the research that seems to be effective is using three times five minutes. Okay, um, that seems to be the minimal amount of time that's needed. Um, and that's just, you know, sort of trying to bring together most of the, the clinical side of things. Mm-hmm. There are some groups, and we've just done a study. Again, I, I'm not going to lie to you and say I'll know the results off the top of my head because I would be lying. Um, but we've just <laughs> had a student who's finished some work. And along with the, a group in Brazil, um, we're looking at different ways you can apply it. So is one by five minutes the same as five by one? Yeah. And is three by five the same as five by three? So we're starting to put in different scenarios yeah. to allow us to really establish 
um, those optimal times. The problem is, like anything, the more different comparisons you make, the harder it is to really see anything without yeah. really large numbers of individuals. Right. And that's where you always get, you're always limited with your research. It's the number of people you can study this on. Right, right. Yeah, and I guess where those numbers came from initially is in the animal models, they would put different thresholds. So three on or five on or one bout or three bouts or five bouts and then cause ischemic damage to the heart and see which ones preserve the heart the best. And, and that's kind of where this three by five seems to come from. I mean, I, I think the, yeah. the most recent animal paper was at least three, no more than six rounds, at least three minutes, no more than five minutes or something like that. So it, at least we have a range I think we can go to and and then, exactly. And I think that's what most people are, you know, it's mostly based off those animal studies, yeah. um, which then allows you to basically move it into the and, more sort of remotely into performance. And so what people are looking at it for performance is, can I do this right before I do something like do a sprint or do an all out cycle sprint or or do some sort of athletic type maneuver? And, and does it make my performance better? I guess that's the first question. So so what have you seen on that? It's, it's all over the place, right? It really is. You know, our first study that we looked at was we actually looked at repeated sprints. So we had six second sprints on a, on a bike, mm -hmm. um, 30 seconds recovery, and we did 12 sprints. And we actually thought that where we would see a benefit was around the recovery side of things. Um, based off, you know, models that we'd looked at from animals, but also the, the work that had come out before us was really looking at improved endurance capacity and improved, you know, whether it was VO2 max or timed exhaustion at VO2 max. So we were looking at um, the idea of we would help the, the repeated sprint ability, so that fatigue index along the repeated sprint type work, mm -hmm. but actually find something totally different. We actually find that we improved the actual power output on those sprints itself and um, which on the first three which was completely opposite of what we had hypothesized right. um again why that's the case again there's some animal work to suggest that um there may be some sort of potential increased recruitment with regard following ipc of um, motor units or also there's potentially um, greater use of atp from phosphocreatine stores as well and mm -hmm. um, so we, we kind of hypothesized that was the reason, but we couldn't be 100% sure. And again, if I look back, we had, we used an arbitrary pressure, 220 millimeters of mercury. Now, when it comes to repeated sprints, I am not 100% confident that what we're seeing in that study is actually a true reflection of what happens. So we have since repeated that study. Jonathan Griffin did some work in recreational athletes um, using a run a running based model and again didn't demonstrate the same improvements we had seen now there's a simple explanation for that in that it could be a, there could be a big technical component you know you're producing force against the pedal yeah. which everybody can do compared to them being able the ability to sprint right, yeah. you know which if you're not used to it maybe there's a there's a difference there so um potentially there's something there but also what we've demonstrated we again some unpublished work but with um england rugby sevens and so we went to the elite athlete and we didn't demonstrate an improvement in sprint ability with um the elite athletes which jamie burr's group in canada have also demonstrated with some elite sprinters also mm -hmm. so it could be that you know the elite side of elite athletes already have a well-developed and um, potentially cardiovascular system and so on which means there's not as much room for maneuver with ipc right. whereas in the less well-trained you know there's more room for expansion because they haven't got those adaptations right from a, right. From a training perspective um or it could be because you know we aren't using 
the correct pressures. Yeah. Um, it really is. We really probably need to go back to the drawing board a little bit. But I, I don't believe that we're going to see much from a, a sprint and power output side of things. I think it's more of an endurance um, enhancement than anything from what all the research is suggesting. Yeah, and possibly a muscle oxidative angiogenic type effect, you think? Yeah, potentially. I think acutely, from an angiogenic perspective, you know, there's not acutely you're going to get an increase in things like VEGF and other factors. But mm-hmm. whether that has an impact on performance is, is probably very debatable. Right. Um, certainly from an oxidative um, metabolism perspective, there's some evidence that suggests that we can attenuate the, the deoxygenation within the muscle with, mm-hmm. you know, IPC, and it can help in that regard. But it's been very difficult for people to, you know, objectively prove that there's a clear link between the deoxygenation level and then the performance enhancement or the performance improvement, mainly because, again, like I'm going to, in some of the work we did, in some of the studies where we found no differences, you know, you're talking at least half the population went one way and half went the other. Um yeah likely because of pressure but there is a really individualized response there's no doubt about it and there's lots of things that play a factor even you know taking caffeine blunts the effect of ipc so there's lots of little things there that can play a role right yeah and i think jamie pointed out you know responders versus non-responders this is kind of something that's that probably has to be looked at yeah i think look one i think one thing that I always find that, like, if, if there was a clear responders versus non-responders yeah. argument, you know, I would be the first to be really happy with that. But at the same time, I think the only way you really look at, I think it's an easy out from a from a research perspective to say, well, we didn't see anything as responders and non-responders. <coughs> I think you really have to think about whether or not, if, you know, if someone doesn't respond every time, then they're a non-responder. But if someone gets better sometimes and not others, that's just the variation in the test and it's nothing to do with the IPC. Right. So I think we need studies that are actually going to really clearly use IPC numerous times, which won't cause an adaptation, but will cause allow you to detect whether or not someone's a responder or non-responder. Right, right. And again, the the detail is, is the devil in this stuff. And using 220 across the board, you can say, well, yeah, we standardized it. But then you look at all the different size of the lower extremity limbs and, and knowing that's one of the biggest variables of occlusion, <laughs> you, you have a huge thing that you didn't standardize for. Um, and, 100%. And that's, that's all different size limbs. So definitely need to move it into personalizing. Um, and, and just quickly, I know Patrick had a recent one that you were on as well, where, where they looked at remotely versus local um you know can you put it on the arm and have effects at the lower extremity or does it have to be on the lower extremity to have effects any thoughts on that yeah so i think like i'm a, I'm a big advocate of in blood flow restriction training you know and a lot of the work that stuart philos has done outside of that you know, i don't know i don't believe that they they there is a very factor or systemic restriction training per se leading to growth changes um, um, but when it comes to ischemic preconditioning, that's a different debate. Um, mm-hmm. Ischemic preconditioning itself essentially does kind of, does work systemically. We know that. We know we can ischemic, um, we can do IPC in one arm and get adaptations in another. Yeah. You know that's been shown time and time again. Um, that's why it was first used. You know, essentially, you're putting it on, say, a limb, an arm, or a leg, and you're trying to protect the heart. Yep. Remote, you know, you're you're applying it remotely. You're not applying it directly to the heart. So there is clearly a systemic response with ischemic preconditioning. Right. So from a performance perspective, we were looking at whether or not there's maybe a possibility of moving it. Um, whether or not you know you sort of use arm or leg, and whether that can have an impact. And there's been a 
a few mixed studies in that regard because one of the problems you have, for example, if you apply it to the leg, you're also depleting energy stores. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're actually going through that ischemia, and actually that's not good from a performance enhancement perspective. So actually, unless you wait a long time or a period of time after the IPC before you then do the performance, which is possible, or if you can do it remotely on the arm, for example, and get the same benefit, that would be nice. So we we did it, and there wasn't a we didn't show a great deal. Um, again, I think if the problem was more or less the the type of test we used because it was more sprint related, and I would like to see it more in an endurance based model to be mm. definitively say whether or not there's going to be an impact or not. But I, I think there potentially could be, but I think we just need to sort of address it a little bit more. Got it. Got it. And, and then I guess moving on, where I where I think it seems like it has more bang for the buck currently is is using it as a as a way to actually maybe blunt or block muscle damage afterwards. So more of a post conditioning type effect. Um, and so we yeah. we have some papers. You have one, Beaven, um, even Alex Franz, our friend over in Germany. They just showed a decrease uh, muscle damage response after eccentric loading w- with an IPC type effect. So what do you think on that? Yeah, it's something that we've you know we did. We again, it's a study we did a long time ago. Actually, it took a, as a while just to write it write it up. Um, we actually have another uh, another arm to the study which we're sort of writing up at the minute. But essentially, we used um, a muscle damage protocol. So it's quite extreme. We made people drop off a box 60 centimeters high and sort of jump as high as they can. So they got a big eccentric loading every time they jumped, they dropped off the box. So it was in total 100 eccentric contractions. And we, you know, we, we were trying to induce a muscle damage response. It was a follow-up to that um, Beaven study because they had done it in a real sort of applied setting, you know, in a training type situation. Yeah. But we wanted to go back and look at the, the clinical way we would use IPC and then look at a more uh, a specific model for recovery. So we, as I said, we used the, um, it as a recovery modality after the exercise. And basically, we only used it once. So it was only the three um, times five minutes. But essentially, we found that most of the markers of muscle damage were recovering at least 24 hours earlier than what they would do right. um, with with no post-conditioning in that respect. The reason that we published that part first, we also had a pre-sort of ischemic pre-conditioning group also, which is very similar to the, the France study. Mm-hmm. But it had an effect on all the markers of damage. So, you know, it reduced um, DOMS, it reduced creating kinase, it reduced swelling, just like the post-conditioning. But it didn't have an impact on force production so they didn't recover any quicker from force. And that's exactly what Franz has found as well. They find that it you know, has an impact on all those things, but not force production, whereas the post-conditioning did. And, you know, from a, I'm just thinking with a, a performance hat on, that's the major factor. You know, can you, if someone feels a bit sore, but they can produce the same force, they don't really care. They just go out and do it. But if actually you're producing less force, because, but even though you feel you feel you've recovered, then that could lead to a problem. Right. So I think there, you know, that's why we went with post condition, and that's the way we think it potentially works a little yeah. bit better. And it's probably easier to apply from a performance standpoint. I, I know that's kind of the way we're skinning the cat here in the states with some of the with some of the athletes is post event. Um, you know, you're done. You go go get it on, and, and then you're done with it. Rather than trying to time it pre before they they play a game or something like that. 100%. And I think the other big potential avenue with it, and something again that we need to investigate, is if you look at most recovery protocols, a lot of the research coming out now suggests that, um, you know, if 
if you look, if you take you know non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or you take ice baths or all these different things, it actually blunts the adaptations. Mm-hmm. So whilst it it helps you recover quicker, the adaptations that you get from training are blunted. Mm-hmm. Now that might not matter to your in season when you're not trying to get an adaptation; you're just trying to recover between games. Right. But actually, with with the IPC or the post conditioning. We are actually getting a recovery benefit, but we also know from other work that we actually get an adaptation right, as well. Right. So we know it's definitely not blunting the adaptations. So it's you know it's it's doing no harm and potentially doing some good. Right. So um, that's where it can be a nice adjunct to what you're already doing. Right. Yeah. And and then if if people haven't seen this or heard about it much, there's, there's obviously a ton of papers out there. But but for easy quick application you think about your your teams that do a ton of travel and a ton of play so over here it's nba mlb nhl um where you know they they hardly have any recovery time between um anything to blunt that damage and and also potentially keep the adaptation on in season um is, is splendid and so it's fascinating it could it could open up a huge new window of of recovery that's a hot topic and it gets thrown around way too much and i don't think people even understand what they're talking about when they say recovery lots of times but but this actually yeah. might have some true science to to back it up it looks like potentially i said i think we still need more studies to sort of optimize the the timings and optimize sure. you know how when you can actually do it you know we just applied this once immediately after do you get a greater benefit if you do it every day right. do you get a benefit if you if you wait a few hours till you're back in the hotel room you yeah. know and then you do it that way yeah. that's stuff that we don't we just don't know yeah yeah and there's and it looks like there's a couple of windows of protection right so you get this like hours of protection and then there's this second window that comes up maybe 24 hours later or so um up to 48 yeah, hours so yeah you essentially have sort of zero to four hours and then 24 hours to 72 hours. Essentially, right. you get different different sort of things are happening more at the later time. It's more, in, you know, changes in inflammatory markers in the earlier stages. It's more to do with adenosine and other factors that are playing a bit of a role there. Right, right. Yeah, and so also clinically, just to look the other way, that, that's where it gets fascinating. People looking at this like post-stroke um, and things like that. If you have this these windows that you can kind of get it on to, to maybe – blunt some of that damage is, is very interesting. Cool. Yeah, certainly. There's, there's plenty of scope there. Yeah. All right. And, and also, I guess I'll put out you and you and Jamie um, with Frontiers and Fizz um, are, are, I guess, guest editors taking papers still um, maybe for another month. We just asked for an extension. Um, and, and so a lot of a lot of stuff is coming out in Frontiers and Fizz that, that you guys are responsible for. Right. Yeah. So we've, we've been editing um a specific topic on ischemic preconditioning and blood flow restriction um and yeah there's another month before the sort of it closes we've extended it for a month so um yeah we've got a, a lot of papers that are in there and sort of just trying to again just try and focus the the mind a little bit on the, the areas because there's such similarities yeah. but also um to try and put together a range of papers that cover sort of some of the topics right some people are interested in this go to frontiers of physiology and, and dr jamie burr and dr stephen patterson guest editors lots of great papers that have come out out of that so let's wrap it up then with angiogenesis um because i'm, I'm very excited um with with some heavy hitters here in the states we might be moving in clinically to looking at very compromised populations um, that have vascular problems and, and diabetic wound healing and peripheral arterial diseases etc cetera, etc cetera. so early on um you put a paper out what well, I, I mean it's been a while now 2011 2010 where you looked at increased blood flow in the lower extremity um in both young women and, and as well as older individuals can you touch base on those 
Yeah, they're, so they're from my PhD originally, and that's what we started off with. Um, we, you know, and look, I've got to th- be honest, you know, they're pretty crappy studies from some <laughs> of the things that we, from some of the things that we now know, you know, with regards yeah. to pressures and so on. Yeah. Um, so we, we were looking at the idea of Richard Ferguson, who was my supervisor, had done some previous work with um, rock climbers who tend to have a lot of isometric holds, you know, when they're when they're climbing cliff faces and different things. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you look at the measurement of blood flow in their arms compared to control participants, they have more blood flow um, at certain different measurements um, compared to control participants. And actually, if you think about what they're doing, they're doing lots of isometric holds, which is essentially ischemia that was going on. So we had this, and there was some other evidence coming out, which potentially we could get, if we caused some form of ischemia, Instead of it being a negative thing, we would actually get a greater response from an angiogenic perspective, which would then lead to some adaptations within the, the vasculature. So um, we, you know, blood flow restriction, you know, stuck out for us, and we decided to move into that direction and looked at the, we, you know, we looked at strength and all the other measures, but in an older population and in a younger population, but essentially. We also measured measure flow, flow during, during then, and then um, after um, the exercise, a period of four weeks of training, and found that, yeah, just like before, we were able to see improvements in um, reactive hyperemia um, in sort of from a blood flow perspective. We didn't see any change in rest in blood flow. Mm-hmm. But Ju- Julie Hunt then came after me um, doing her PhD, and she was able to show improvements in flow-mated dilatation and actually changes within the artery size. So the, the diameter of the artery actually got bigger following blood flow restriction training. So there's clear angiogenic and um, responses. And we know VEGF increases. We've shown that with some of the circulatory markers. And also Julie's done it within the muscle itself, showing yep. VEGF um, mRNA. So there, there's clear, you know, hypoxia is, you know, increasing that VEGF response, which is what the main driver towards capillarization is. Yeah, and, and it's awesome. And, and again, for it, it, it has the ear now of some some big time vascular researchers and vascular surgeons here in the states um, who who really want to get a hold of just just applying to brief amounts of hypoxia to to potentially get this response. And and, and you guys, I, I I guess recently you have an IPC paper um, where you did seven days of IPC and, and also showed some microvascular blood flow changes? Yeah, so we, um, again, that was some of the colleagues with working with the Owen Jeffries and Mark Waldron, um, two of my colleagues at St. Mary's, and they basically, we we decided to look at some of the, again, the adaptations that you get with repeated IPC. So in this case, it was seven days. And there's been previous work in um from other groups, um, Dick Tyson's group up in Liverpool as well have done some nice work where they're demonstrating changes within at the contralateral arm to um, the IPC, so following seven to 10 days um, following um, IPC. And we basically, using um, NEARS, we were able to look at the the muscle um, microvascular um, capacity with um, blood flow and also oxidative capacity within the muscle itself. And we demonstrated that sort of the recovery kinetics were improved with that. And also um, we got a decrease in rest and oxygen consumption. So we, with the test that we use, it basically moves towards potentially change within vascular function as well as mitochondrial function. Mm-hmm. So there's, and it's a, you know, for, for what we were doing, essentially a, a plan of tourniquet at rest, 
um, you know, three to four times with five minutes on, five minutes off is a really, really simple thing that people can do mm-hmm. at home without the need of any exercise, but leading to certain adaptations. And I think there's big clinical crossover carryover yeah. moving forward. I agree. I agree. And and I think if we're able to add even a little bit of of muscle recruitment as well, maybe there's an extra little little burst, you know, Jamie's stuff with E-STEM combined with it, um, or, or Kaysen's work with, he called it IPC, but it was really blood flow restriction prior to ACL and showing these muscle endurance and, and, and vascular changes as well. Yeah, well, we have, I said at the moment, we've got a PhD student, Paul Head, who's currently doing a lot, his whole PhD on electrical stem and blood flow restriction, essentially. So, yeah, um, yeah we, we're on the same sort of line of that. We think there's there's big scope there. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, the, the IPC stuff's exactly the same as the passive stuff, which yeah. we talk about with blood flow restriction and attenuating atrophy and attenuating muscle loss. Um, you know, there, there could be an element there with some of the things that we're seeing in that regard is because we're leading to adaptations within the vasculature, which is helping maintain muscle mass. Again, very, very spec, very speculative, but that could be some of the, the ties in of why that's having an effect. Right. And, and I think going back to, to Kaysen's work then is there's potentially decreased angiogen or decreased blood flow after an ACL reconstruction. And they, they hypothesize it. It's maybe an ischemic reperfusion injury from the tourniquet. Um, but at four weeks, muscle endurance is one of the driving factors of strength. And they also showed that at 12 weeks. Um, so it might be reduced vascular supply. And that pre-habbing, basically, kind of following your model of IPC, increased the vascularization and, and increased muscle endurance at that four-week time point. So, you know, it's, again, everyone just thinks muscle. But but there's more yeah. to it than just muscle. There there's this whole angiogenic response that we have to start looking at as clinicians. Yeah, hundred percent. We have a we have a study going at the minute in intensive care patients with Julie Hunt, Surrey, and you know we we've got people and we're doing Julie's doing a lot of vasculature um, measurements within that because again we're looking at what's happening over that period of time during you know people are in intensive care and in bed rest and actually looking to see can we offset some of those changes. We're looking at the muscle side of things, of course, but we're actually looking at the vasculature side of things as well, right. we're trying to see if we can offset some of that with IPC, right? Or, passive BFR. Super fascinating. And then I guess lastly is it's really going to be interesting once we start looking inside the joint. Um, And and if we talk about things like ACL, you know, does this vascular response also happen at the graft? And and are we potentially pushing the angiogenic response, which is, which is the driver of, of incorporation of the, of the graft after something like an ACL? Yeah, it's it's actually a question I was asked um, at that Italian conference recently. All, all the surgeons yeah. ask it. You know. All the surgeons are asking, mm-hmm. just saying, you know, are we putting the you know their patients at risk right. with the fact that we're because you know we're creating hypoxia, <laughs> we're creating this reduction in blood flow and ischemia, is that actually going to have a negative effect on the graft healing? Um, my argument at the time was like I don't really believe from a BFR perspective, you know, six to eight minutes of exercise is going to have a really that much of a negative effect on the graft. Um, I, ca- I can't say for sure, but the fact that we get angiogenic responses and the fact that we get these um, adaptations yeah. makes me believe that it, it could be beneficial. But as you say, until we actually look at this work and actually try and get inside to have a look, we don't really know. Yeah. Well, and what, I- we, what we do... Sorry, what we do know is that, you know, from the studies that we've just finished and from others, nobody's reporting any negative side no. effects from heal- from a healing perspective. No, you know, no, so no. if forces improved and muscles improved and all these things are improving, 
There doesn't seem to be any weakness from laxity tests or anything else. Yeah. So um, I think that, but again, it's early days. We need probably need more studies just to fully confirm that. Yeah, and hopefully we're we're close down here of being able to look at it in in a pig model. Um, and, and it was it was okay. serendipitously through another another angle. It's increased angiogenesis um, in the synovium is actually a problem and, and leads to, seems to be a pain producer. Um, and, and so Tristan Mars up at the Shishbetti's lab, that's that's something he's really wanting to look at is. You know what what's happened with the vasculature and the synovium, but then also you can maybe take a look and see what it's doing at the ligament as well. Um, so so hopefully we'll have some answers here soon. It, it doesn't seem like we're getting increased pain with BFR as we talked about earlier. So hopefully yeah. um, we don't see the synoviums going crazy, but we do see angiogenesis around the graph. So fingers crossed. Uh, yeah. Whew, man. Uh, I'm worn out, dude. You you filled my brain up. <laughs> we just we just relived your whole life right now. Your, your I know. Think of that myself. Career. Now we're gonna move into your your high school days. Um, no, about let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, Stephen. Um, great talking to you, man. We'll, we'll wrap this up. I think we talked way too long, um, but that's good. It was it was awesome stuff. And uh, I guess we'll start planning to to hang out in DC. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much for having me. All right, man. Talk to you later. Cheers. Take you soon. Bye. All right. All right. We're back. And that was an awesome interview with Stephen. As always, it went long and, and we had a little audio cut out there um, interviewing these these dudes over in the, in Europe. I, th- I think their Wi-Fi is just not as great as ours over there. So we always seem to get cut out. Um, but anyways, we're back. We're going to answer a couple questions here real quick to wrap things up. So, Ben, what, what questions do we have submitted? Yeah, so uh, the first question is coming from Jen. Uh, it says, timing of implementation of BFR when used with traditional strengthening. Do you do BFR exercises first, then finish with others, or do other strengthening exercises first and gas them with BFR at the end of the session? We get asked that a lot, um, and, and we do obviously do this with especially a lot of the strength coaches and stuff. So um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so – um, from the studies that we have, basically, uh, that I'm familiar with, too, in Division One, Division Two football player studies, um, and they combined the use of BFR with their high-intensity training programs. Those were – they did their high-intensity training programs first, and then following the squat, bench, deadlift, whatever the strength coaches had planned for them, then they went ahead and did their BFR exercises. I think that's kind of the way to go, um, seeing how – you want to get the most out of your high intensity workout. So, you know, if you're lifting close to a one RM, you want to get max effort into that mm-hmm. and then break out and do whatever BFR exercises that you want to do, whether you want to just do those same exercises again, mm-hmm. a, a squat bench press or break out and use your BFR for isolated muscle groups doing accessory work. I think that's an avenue as well, but um, I would recommend doing the, uh, your high intensity training first followed by BFR. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like that thought process. And I, I think personally, you know, from playing around with it, I think it works great to just get that true failure at the end of a high intensity session. Um, but I do think it's interesting, you know, I've heard some people talk about using it, you know, with really low level exercises as, as kind of a neuro re Um, and, and so maybe that's it, you know, you just do it with something that's going to be, um, sub failure and use it for a little activation or something prior to, I, I don't know, um, you know, how big of a, a tool that is. I mean, it makes some sense to me, but I definitely like it at the end of the session. 
Did I cut you off? Go ahead. Oh, no, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and, and the, the key, I guess, is BFR is very fatiguing. Um, and, and we've seen that MVC is down big time right afterwards. And so fatiguing someone where they have limited capacity left and then throwing big weights on them, um, where they might even be a little confused because they haven't lifted a lot of weights, but they don't realize how how down they are on, on, on muscle energy stores is, is probably not the best avenue to go about it. So it, it, from a safety standpoint, it, it seems like it should be the finisher. And, and from everyone we've worked with that I, I know of, that's the way their strength coaches have been programming it in. Lift, 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 and then they go over and, and will do maybe a more safe position in BFR, like leg press or something, and just empty the tank. And, dude, it is terrible. I've done it to lift heavy and then go do like a leg press finisher under BFR. It, it, you, you have nothing, <laughs> nothing yeah. left in the tank. And, and, and they use kind of a different loading volume, but you know, the rugby player study cook, they did show that the, the guys doing BFR had a, a significantly higher drive of testosterone from doing that. And so we do know that's anabolic. And, and so it could be like this little extra anabolic push. And, and I do know some folks that are load intolerant but aren't necessarily injured um, with, with like some back injuries and things like that or more of a veteran player. They want to taper down their heavy lift, but they still want to get it in. So it's almost like a combo of moderate to heavy lift, but but not to the point where they're going to aggravate their problem and then go finish with BFR. So they got the stimulus, neuromuscular drive maybe, or, or just, you know, they need to get some heavy in and then BFR is that finisher, right? Yeah, agreed. I think, too, it's kind of a programming question overall. I mean, and the idea that we have to combine them heavy lifting and BFR in the same session, perhaps we should kind of maybe even crush them on one day and then your next day is all BFR. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could you could sequence that whole thing. I mean, I think from just looking at some of those muscle damage studies and how long it takes to fully repair that muscle damage, it might make a lot of sense to really lift heavy one day, create a bunch of muscle damage, and then later on in the week, create this big muscle protein synthesis stimulus that could potentially heal that tissue a bit faster and without causing extra damage. Um, who knows? Maybe it's more powerful. I, yeah, I, I, probably not, but um, it could make a little sense. And any, at any rate, you're just kind of switching things up and, and changing, changing what you're doing, which you kind of have to do in order to keep moving forward. Well, I, I agree. And so that's that's this whole question of recovery. People throw around like, well, what do you what do you do for recovery? Well, what do you mean by recovery? Does recovery mean less DOMS? Does a recovery mean, you know, they sleep better? Does recovery mean they get quicker, you know, return to their MVC? And so one thing we do know is if you drive muscle damage with a heavy load, maybe if you do a protein synthetic stimulus to make the muscle recover faster, you got this extra spike of, of mTOR and, and protein synthesis and they're dialed in the nutrition, then the muscle's recovering faster. I, I think that's why we see in the BFR work the, the hypertrophy happens so quick because we don't have the muscle damage aspect, but we have the muscle protein synthetic aspect. And if you look at the comparison side to side, lots of times of BFR to heavy lifting, you know, maybe heavy lifting wins in strength, but BFR often wins in cross-sectional area because you don't have the muscle damage piece to it. So I think it's a smart way to go about it. So, yeah. So I think that's good, Jen. That's uh, you get a free T-shirt. Earn your deflate just in time for Christmas, man. T-shirt. So Tori Tor will be getting with you on it. What? Let's do one more question. All right. The the second question is coming from Melanie. Uh, how long after BFR do the levels of growth hormones stay raised? Uh, been challenged by some that the Takarata study shows increases in growth hormone is too transient to have latent effects. 
What are you guys yeah, thoughts on that? Who wants to take that? Yeah. Well, we know we know that 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 is a, it is a transient increase. I mean, I think levels were back to baseline at what ninety minutes post, but really dropped pretty quickly. I mean, they were up. I think was it 15, 30 minutes. They were really spiked and then and then came came back down relatively quickly. I mean, I think that that increase has to be meaningful in some capacity. I mean, we have that physiologic response there for some reason, but is it clinically relevant is probably the bigger question that people are trying to answer. And there's some thought perhaps maybe that it helps to augment those diurnal secretions of of growth hormone when we sleep, that sort of thing. But I don't know. I mean, you know, and we know from, uh, you guys are going to laugh because it's like, okay, we're going to talk Keith Barr again, but we also know that exercise has this ability to, 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 to bring on collagen synthesis, which we know, of course, growth hormone is uh, associated with right. collagen synthesis. And so if we're giving this region of the body some sort of exercise, at a minimum, we're, we're causing something to happen there that has potential to, um, to have an effect. But, you know, on the other side of things, there's that thought of growth hormone being tied to muscle size and, and, and muscle strength, which, of course, we have all those exogenous studies that have shown you take these growth hormone levels and you keep them super physiologic for lengthy bouts, and it does not change muscle protein synthesis. Um, so, and, and there's significant side effects and concerns with keeping those levels up that high for, for so long. Right. Yeah, and, and so it's, it's, again, like understanding maybe what the target is with this. It, it's not an acute bout that you're looking at. Um, this is usually weeks um, where we're looking to see changes. And, and so growth hormone is diurnal. Um, and so you get this spike and then there's this, this secondary spike um, when you, when you go to go to sleep. And that's part of the, the whole sleep hygiene and recovery. And then, you know, there's a study out there where they, they basically blunted people's sleep by not allowing them to sleep and, and started knocking down melatonin and the circadian rhythm cycles and growth hormone um, was blunted down as well. And so if, if growth hormone doesn't seem to play any role in proteins since the synthesis and making muscles bigger, um, it does look like it plays a role in collagen synthesis and, and, and working on the extracellular matrix and tendon and ligaments and bone and things like that. And, and so if every you step back evolutionary, then why would a big spike in lactate when you broke everything down cause a big spike in growth hormone right almost tied in perfectly with it? Um, and then as you sleep, you get another big spike and it's because it, it plays a role in repair and recovery. And so that's what we are interested in. And I think that's what you look at it. And, and, and even, you know, uh, Brian Irving's work again, um, and, and, and people with, uh, with abdominal visceral fat and, and, you know, having some of the comorbidities associated with that, their growth hormone levels are down. And if they exercise them and, and spike lactate, GH over, over, I think it was like 16 weeks was significantly elevated. Um, and so this is a more of a chronic thing. I think we're looking at for weeks that you, that you boost it up and you've seen this in untrained, you know, studies with women, they trained for a year and their GH from baseline when they started to the next year was up higher. Right. Yeah. I think it's pretty similar though, you know, to like just high intensity training. So if we don't think growth hormones important, we get a we, get, we get, actually get a larger spike with BFR than we get with high-intensity training, but yep. it's that cumulative overall effect that leads to the, the changes that we feel that we see with collagen and, and the recovery aspect for sure. Right. So, yeah, I think, I think the big thing, like none of us are hanging our hat on like 
dude, we're doing this for growth hormone. <laughs> a lot of people like to cite those studies because it's impressive. We don't know yet. We do know that, you know, you can make it spike. And, and, and we know that the accumulation of lactate is from fast twitch metabolism. Um, that's a byproduct of it. And as your patients are feeling that terrible burn, they feel with BFR, um, they're building up lactate, which means the, the second phase is there's going to be a spike of growth hormone, which, which kind of just means you're getting into the pathway that you want. Um, and then we'll see, you know, part of the rotator cuff trial, um, we're going to see, does that spike and does it for doing it for six weeks, make the rotator cuff heal better. Um, and we'll look deep at the tendon and see, is there less fat, fatty infiltrate? One thing growth hormone does is it, is it breaks down fat. Um, that's a whole visceral fat study. Brian Irving's group did, um, as you get more visceral fat, you have less growth hormone. As you have more growth hormone, you have less visceral fat. Um, the big problem with rotator cuff repairs and tendon problems up there is fatty infiltrate and lack of collagen synthesis. So we'll, we'll see if clinically we can spike these things over weeks and make changes. Hey, Johnny, with, with that study, are you guys doing lower extremity exercise combined with upper extremity or how are you can't talk about it can yet, you man. can you just can't talk it? about okay. it yet. it's i didn't know i figured i'd ask i mean I might truth well. is truth is and reaching out to a lot of friends we're still trying to dial it in it's very difficult when you got an arm that you can't really do anything with um so uh we're, we're gonna see we're looking at it from a healing standpoint though and, and that's something that's different with most other BFR clinical work. Most people aren't looking, you know, the femur fracture trial, we're going to look at, you know, the, the healing rates of the long bone, but this will be specifically, let's see what happens at the tendon level. So crop fingers crossed. I think it's hundred percent ready to go, but you never know. Cool. All right. That was good. Another free t-shirt to, to Mel. There you go, man. I'm like Santa Claus today. Just, just giving out freebies left and right. All right, fellas. So I, I think we're going to try and get one more in before the end of the year. And have you, have you guys looked at the calendar for next year? Holy hell, man. It's a zoo. It's, it's a zoo. January. January alone. <laughs> First quarter. What are you talking about January? Someone asked me at TCC if I could come out um, in, in January to, to work with them. And I just laughed, man. There's, there's not like a day left, I don't think. So yeah. anyways, um, we'll, we'll get another in and, and then safe travels. Um, if you're doing anything over the holidays, but, and we'll talk soon. All right. Cool. All right. Thanks fellas. Yep. All right. Good All talking. Right. Thanks for listening to the Owens recovery science podcast. Owens recovery science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com. <laughs>